0: Hey everyone. My name is Jake, and welcome to the sixth episode of Good Timing. Uh, As always on this podcast, we're going to be talking all about one of our favorite bands, the Beach Boys. Uh, And I'm really looking forward to today's episode because we are going to be continuing our discussion on the Beach Boys as a live band and touring act. Uh, Only this time, we are going to be focusing on the live band from the early 70s and onwards. So... Uh, There's a lot of really interesting things to discuss from this period. You have the addition of guitarist Blondie Chaplin and Ricky Vitar on drums in 1972, uh, and they both played a huge part in the band's live shows, sounding as great as they did around that time. Uh, There was also the band's big resurgence of popularity in the mid-70s. There were several major concert tours. There was a co-headlining tour with Chicago, uh, as well as the Brian's Back tour in 76, which was a massive stadium tour. Uh, and of course, there was also quite a bit of turmoil going on within the band around the late 70s and early 80s, which sometimes would ha- have a negative impact on the live show. So uh, we'll get into all of that as well. Uh, and then, of course, we'll also go into the years and decades since then. Uh, we'll talk about the 50th anniversary reunion tour in 2012. Uh, we'll talk about the current Beach Boys touring band with Mike and Bruce a little bit. And maybe we'll also share some of our own uh, Beach Boys concert stories from over the years. I know, Justin, you have some cool stories, so uh, we'll definitely get into that at the end. So. Uh, for today's episode, I'm happy to have Riley, Matt, and Justin with me, so uh, happy to have you guys here, and I cannot wait to talk about all these interesting topics with you guys. So uh, I guess to start, to kind of just pick up where we left off last episode, in case anybody missed it or is just tuning in for this one, uh, we left off around 1971, and around that time the Beach Boys were playing at a lot of colleges and universities across the U.S., uh, as well as some bigger festivals and shows. Um, one of the festivals they did was the May Day Peace Celebration, which was in Washington, D.C. There's some footage online of that. Uh, they also did the Big Sur Folk Festival in Monterey, California, which was actually the previous year. Um, but we forgot to mention it last time. But that was a uh, concert that they did. And it was pretty successful from what I've read. Um, also, Jack Riley had recently taken over as the band's manager around this time. And he was working pretty hard to help them change their image. Uh they were trying to fit in more with the counterculture movement of the time. You know, they didn't want to be they were they didn't want to be this band of the 60s, you know, that surf rock band. They wanted to be more hip and, and fitting in with the time. So um, they did have some success in doing this because the Surf's Up album did sell pretty well uh, for the Beach Boys and uh, more people were starting to attend their concerts. Uh, they were becoming a really great live band around this time uh, and they had a really good variety in their set list. They were doing a mix of old material as well as their newer material. So it was a really great time to see the band live. Um, But then in the summer of 71, uh, Dennis injured his hand. I believe he like punched it through glass or something, and he injured it pretty badly to the point that he wasn't able to drum anymore. Uh, So what ended up happening was the band, not long after that, they brought in South African musician Ricky Pitar to play drums, uh, as well as his former bandmate Blondie Chaplin to play guitar. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, both Ricky and Blondie had a really big impact on the band's sound, both on stage and in the studio. Uh, and since I know Riley, this is one of your favorite periods of the band, I'll let you kind of take things from there. So if you want to kind of pick up on, on that era, go ahead.
1: Absolutely. So Carl found the flame, oh, I think back in 1969, maybe 1970, and he actually produced their album for them. They were the only other band besides the beach boys on brother records, which is really cool to Think about, but after a while, I mean, they, 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 jammed them in the studio, they, they, they hung out. And then when Dennis injured his hand, they, they brought in Ricky Fatar, and because they've had experience working with Blondie jamming around, they've invited him into their live act. And for, before they even recorded the Carl and the passions album, they, they've been toured together and they were doing incredible stuff. And then Carl and the passions comes out and they have this whole new sound for the material, it's a lot more hard rock driven, which is something that I feel like FM radio definitely liked. And you see that later with Holland. It, it And you see a lot of boost in their live act, especially their surf songs, I think, where those are rocking songs. And then you have these new guys who are just absolutely killing it. So there's it, an awesome period for the band, especially 72, 73. when you see guys start seeing those shows like at Carnegie Hall, um, you see that show that they did. Oh my god i forgot what it was i have it right here crap what they did one at carnegie i forgot the other big one that they used for in concert um anybody have that Hartford, connecticut I, it wasn't hartford i would know that being from connecticut um <coughs> but regardless i mean a lot of the material that they were doing especially the material that they were doing live off their new albums like carl and the passions in holland marcella leaving this town we, we got Love, which was actually scrapped from the Holland album. That, that was just huge parts of their live show. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Leaving This Town, where they have that, like, keyboard solo that was improvised. You, I mean, I love the in-concert version. It goes on and on. And I know Jake says sometimes that bores him a little bit, but I'm really into that prog rock stuff where they're improvising and jamming off of that, off the music. It's, it's awesome. To see that in the Beach Boys really was a big draw for me. That's what drew me in initially was that Carl, the passion's Holland era. So that's my spiel.
0: Yeah. The, the in concert album, it's really cool hearing the different arrangements that they did of songs on there. Like you hear, let the wind blow on there, especially is really cool. Like I love the wild honey version, but that kind of, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like slowed down a bit. And then you got Carl on lead. Um, I just, I really like it a lot. I think it's a really cool arrangement. Um, also, uh, we got love as a song that I used to not care for. Like I would heard it before and it didn't do anything for me. And then recently I was re-listening to the in concert album, uh, in preparation for this episode. And I was like, God damn, I kind of like this. Like, this is pretty good. Like, I actually like this song a lot. I still think the studio version is not the best. And I, I do get why it was dropped, but as a live song, I think this was really cool. And, uh, it's a great kind of a showcase for Blonnie and Ricky's talents as well. Uh, And then also like Funky Pretty on in concert is really cool as well. It really rocks. Uh, I actually I know some people definitely prefer the concert version. I actually do like the studio version a lot. I would say I maybe prefer it, but um, I do like the live version of Funky Pretty. Uh, And of course, I know it's not on the in concert album, but the band was doing Jumpin' Jack Flash around this time to close out their concerts. And if you listen to some of the recordings of that, like I know on the Sail on Sailor box set on the Carnegie Hall show, they have it at the end and uh they they really crushed it like it sounds awesome and mike's doing like his you know his front man act being like mick jagger and stuff and uh he sounds really good so uh the band was really great live around this time uh and i'm glad that like the in concert album exists because it kind of like it's a way of like hearing what it would have sounded like to be at a beach Boys concert in the early 70s with Blondie and ricky so
1: heck yeah Yeah. i really liked um and there is a version of jumping jack flash on uh oh you already mentioned that but it was on the carnegie show Mm -hmm. um (laughs) <laughs> i i mean i really like the blues he helped me Rhonda. they were reworking a lot of those classic songs like you mentioned let the wind blow um there's a version of oh crap what was it it was not caroline no it's a song from pet sounds i think it's you still believe in me yes yep it, that was so such a beautiful song when they did it live it was like so mellow and drawn out it was so cool to hear that um there's I think the Al vocal on Heroes and Villains, I was was that Heroes and Villains? Yep. Did, Al. That surprised me so much. And I, I didn't realize Al could just rip that song out, but he did. So Wild yeah, on Carnegie. I think that's the that's the
2: Al is a really underrated vocalist. Um yeah, I listened to this album. I think it's a great album. Like I said, I love the bluesy. I like like the it's more hard rockin'. I actually have the Wikipedia page open now, just to see where everything was recorded. So we have some songs from Hollywood Palladium in LA. Uh, we have some songs from the Pine Knob Amphitheater in Clarkston, Michigan. We have a song at the Syria Mosque in Pittsburgh, the Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, New York, the Century Theater in Buffalo, New York, the Capitol Theater in pasiac New Jersey. If I pronounced that wrong, I apologize. The mosque in Richmond, Virginia. And I think that's all. So kind of like it's like kind of a mix from different shows. It's not just like one show straight through, which I think that tends to be par for the course with a lot of rock concert albums. They tend to mix and match. Yeah. At least that's what I know it's compared to like more easy listening stuff or like that. tends to be from like one show. Maybe jazz as well. I'm not as familiar with jazz, so I'll refrain from that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a really awesome. It's a really awesome record. Um, I kind of like the cover art too. Um, I think someone once time made a joke. It kind of looks like Dennis is like hissing on the audience, which is kind of. Funny. <laughs> like it. I think it's a really cool record and um yeah, like I said, I like where the I like where the live show was. The live shows were at the time. Um it's a little unfortunate what came a little bit after, but I know we're getting there in a minute. So
1: yeah. I I I really want to mention Wild Honey. The live version that Blondie sings is one of the few tracks in the Beach Boys catalog where I totally prefer the live one like miles ahead of the studio version. I could never listen to the studio version of Wild Honey and not think about the guitar solo that was that was awesome, and Blondie ripping the ripping the vocals. It, it, it's such a good live version.
0: Uh, Justin, if I remember right, um, so like when they were doing the In Concert album, didn't they record a bunch of shows around that time, and then they kind of sat down and just picked out the best co- the best recordings from each one? Because like I know yeah. with other live albums they've done that, like with Wings Over America. If you look at the where the where the different songs were recorded, they were from a variety of different venues. So uh, I think that's Any- what they. Yeah. So
3: this album is a little bit different than a lot of a lot of other concert albums around the time, too, because um, in between the tracks, there's not a lot of audience. So they'll fade the audience out like really, uh, really low. So it was kind of just like um, kind of a muted kind of concert album. Like there wasn't a lot of like wild applause or anything like that. That was kind of conscious that they did that the way that they kind of structured it.
0: And I, it's interesting because like you compare that to like the uh, like on Sail on Sailor, the box set recently, they released that Carnegie Hall concert on there. And on there, it's like they didn't edit out anything. So you hear yeah. like the stage banter at one point, the you hear banter. Mike, Mike like scolding some some fans, I think, for like sh- shouting for oldies or something. So it's kind of fun how like on one album you get like not too much stage banner but then on the carnegie one you hear all the stage banners so like you kind of have like if, if you're into that you have an option and if you're not into that you also have an option which is nice so
2: sure. and also i was another live album from a couple years later Fram- frampton comes alive that was a huge one and that's another one too that was recorded from quite a few different shows um actually as far as stage banter goes have you ever heard of was it like fun with elvis on stage where it's literally only yeah, stage yeah. banter? it's considered like
3: yeah.
2: worst records ever made but yeah i um, <laughs> like if you listen to like like i said i'm going back to like you know i think that's just the thing with like i said with rock concert albums i think they do sometimes try to find the best ones and also they overdub if you ever listen to judy at carnegie hall the judy the judy garland one which is a great live album that one is a straight through take of the carnegie hall you can even hear her like bump into the microphone and stuff so i just think it's kind of interesting to see the dichotomy you know with the different genres and live recordings
0: yeah and, and something interesting too that i kind of already mentioned it a little bit but Um, something that was going on around this time a lot with the concerts, even before like endless summer had come out in 74, you know, we're talking about like 73 ish 72 ish right now. Um, the beach boys were still dealing with people that. Were, that we're like wanting to hear just the oldies. And uh, there was a lot of concerts I've read about in the Beach Boys and Concert book where like it says like the crowd is being really disrespectful and like how like the band would do newer songs and they'd get like either like a, like a kind of like a slight applause or like a confused reaction from the fans. But then once they'd start doing like the older songs, like the encore of like the hits, then people would really get into it. And I imagine that was really frustrating for the band, you know, like you're trying to be more progressive and do uh, material from your newer albums and kind of show that like, you're not just the band of the past, you know, you're not just the 60s surf rock band, you're trying to uh, add some variety and the fans sometimes were not having it. Um, Like I said, they were doing a lot of like college, uh, college uh, venues around this time. And like, sometimes people just you know, they were here, they were there for the hits. They saw the Beach Boys' name and they were like, I want to hear I Get Around and Fun, Fun, Fun. And then, you know, they start doing songs like Leaving This Town and Funky Pretty. And some people were probably like, What the hell, you know? But uh, I respect the band for trying to uh, incorporate all those newer songs into their set list. And it, it it sounds like they're definitely like certain crowds would react really well. There were crowds that definitely did enjoy those songs too. Um, but it really depended where they were playing, It's from what I've read. But
2: yeah. You just trolled them and only played the new stuff. I love when artists do that. There's a <laughs> couple artists who tried that. I think every artist that's ever done that has had to walk that back and start playing the old stuff again.
0: Yeah, Justin, I think we'll get to it when we get to 75. But I think you maybe mentioned, uh, like, I think Elton John did that once, right? Where he just did his, yeah. one of his new albums all the way through, and people did not know how to react to it.
3: Man, we'll talk about this show after.
0: All right. Yeah. In the 90s, I think David Bowie I, had a whole story. He's like, I'm retiring everything.
2: I'm not going to play more new stuff again. Prince, too. <laughs> Yeah, Prince in the nineties only played uh, the Gold Experience, so it was like Pussy Control and all that stuff, and like people didn't know how to react to it.
3: Mm-hmm. I want to say something really interesting about the In Concert album, just like a personal kind of story. Um, growing up, I actually bought like a used vinyl copy of this album, um, and the way that it was structured back then was it was for like record changers. Like one side, one album was side one and side four, then the other album was side two and side three. Okay, and then. Uh, I was so excited to find this album that I didn't even look at like the actual records that were in the in the sleeve at the time. So I paid my I think it was two dollars to buy this record. Uh, It's like a double album. And I got home. I pulled out the first album. I put it on the turntable. I listened to it, and it's Marcella. It's side two and side three. I'm like, okay, I guess side one and side four is in this this other sleeve. Pull it out. It's another side two, side three. So I had two copies of side two and side three. I didn't actually hear half the album for, like, a good, like, 10, 15 years after that. That's crazy. Yeah, (laughs) but it was hard to find. So, like, I was just excited just to have half the album.
0: Hey, at least you had the side with Live Marcella because that song ripped a lot. That song is awesome. That's one of my favorites on that in-concert album. Marcella sounds so good. Uh,
3: Let the the Wind Blow was on it as well, too. Yeah.
0: Oh, cool. That specific record, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, in 73, since we're kind of around that period, that's when the In Concert album came out. Um, in terms of the backing band around that time, who 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 was in it? I know, was Daryl Dragon still with them at that point, or he departed?
1: I believe he was. Daryl was still with them.
0: Okay, because I know Daryl Dragon, I know, um, Bill- was Billy Hinchy?
1: Billy Hinchy
3: was there, yeah.
0: Yeah, so yeah, it seems like with the Beach Boys, yeah, they had a... They had some backing musicians that like really hung around for a while, like throughout the 70s guys like I think Carly Munos in in the 70s and people like that. So they had a really consistent backing band and they sound really good. They add a lot to the uh, the overall sound of the of the band, because, again, like in the 60s, they didn't have that, you know, like in the mid 60s. Obviously, they did start incorporating horns like later in the 60s. But like it's tough to reproduce that sound in the studio when you don't have like some backing. So uh, I, I think it definitely helped them a lot in terms of their in concert performances. Um, in '73. So, is this? So, if I if I'm not mistaken, doesn't Blondie depart in '73?
1: November, yeah.
0: And uh do any of you want to kind of go into that story with with Blondie leaving the band, how that happened?
1: Yeah. So,
3: um, this was at Madison Square Garden. Was the, the show that kind of like broke the straw on the camel's back? Um, they were playing with Linda Ronstadt. That was the opener for the specific show. Uh, Bruce Johnson was actually there too he was there for the encore um, they I guess they brought like a bunch of their friends and family and stuff up on stage for this encore and Blondie Chaplin wanted to bring up his girlfriend on stage and Steve Love didn't want that so that was kind of like the thing that uh, created that huge fight and then after the show um, Steve Love caught up with Blondie after the show and he took his gum out of his mouth he watered it up and threw it at Blondie Chaplin's face. And that was kind of the thing where after that he quit so um yeah that's all that's, that's all old. we know really like
2: i think blondie also someone asked him on facebook one time and he mentioned he was called a racial slur or something so i think that's where yeah. that part came yeah. from um yeah. also yeah, too, no, we got to talk about the big thing in 73 right american graffiti <laughs> right
1: right oh the yeah of, george lucas
2: the re- release of american graffiti basically caused the demand for the oldies again i think because you know The timing of the movie, it came out around the time of Watergate and everything, and people were kind of nostalgic for the past. And, you know, American Graffiti takes place in 62, when Kennedy was still alive, when people felt very optimistic. The Vietnam War hadn't really – I mean, it it started, but it hadn't really kicked off in earnest yet. So I think that, you know, obviously two Beach Boys songs are featured very prominently in it. And, I think it's Surf and Safari, right? And also um, Awesome Along oh, credits, which is actually an anachronism because the song didn't come out to 64. But it's very um, haunting in that movie, actually, when it's used because it's used over the end. That tells you what happens to all the characters. And um, so obviously the release of American Graffiti started to create a demand for the oldies. And as we would see in 1974, The Summer would come out. And mm. I think it's ultimately the, probably the biggest double-edged sword that ever happened to the group them popular again you know they were voted rolling stones band of the year but it kind of stifled their um creativity and their like their artistic growth that's where i'm at with it
1: definitely
3: it definitely slowed them down it definitely slowed them down like they became more focused on the live shows um this in 74 uh if we're starting to talk about 74 um they did so many shows that year they were just constantly on the road and um yeah like they weren't really recording at all um there was a couple times that they tried to start recording and then uh they had brian involved a couple times and it just it didn't work out and brian got homesick when they went to caribou it was just like a lot of stuff going on with the group and i think that they just decided to play it safe this year and just like really just hammer out the shows and um, even at the beginning of 74 they were still playing like a lot of universities and colleges Mm -hmm. and then if you look at the uh the itinerary um it goes from that to by the summer they're playing like huge stadiums with Crosby Crosby Stills Nash and Young uh who was like absolutely huge at the time that was like the, the biggest one of the biggest bands in 1974 so um they were in a really good spot by the time the summer uh of 74 after Endless Summer came out
2: David Crosby of course is a big Beach Boys fan no, I think he once time exactly. mentioned that my room was so good that he's like I can never ever write anything as good as that I give up <laughs>
0: Uh, From what I remember from reading about that tour, uh, actually, from what I read, the band members were kind of getting a little annoyed about it because the Beach Boys were actually overshadowing Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young on that tour. Like the people, like they were like the live, like you said, the live act was so good around that time. They were really focusing on it that, like, you know, when the Beach Boys cranked out that string of hits, you know, to start the show, like, you know, it just blew people away, and, like, obviously, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young have more of a, a folkier, quieter sound, you know, uh, compared to those Beach Boys hits, so, like, it must have felt a little bit like a come down for some people, you know, obviously, if you were there for Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, that's one thing, but, like, if you were just there to have a good time, like, man, the Beach Boys uh, set list that they were doing, that would have me really, like, pumped up, and then, yeah, to go from that to, to that, it must have been quite a been an interesting experience. um also around this time with the transition uh, to like more oldies focused set lists with the you know, with endless summer coming out soon and stuff. um wasn't this around the time Jack Riley departed as well in in terms of management? I think the band kind of ousted him, right?
2: They apparently ousted him because if you believe heroes and villains, they didn't like that he was involved with another man. Don't know how true that is, but that's what Stephen Gaines wrote in the book. I know Al later said in that Goldmine interview that he was kind of like a trickster and he was kind of like a, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he kind of was like a charlatan a bit. And um I know Jack Riley didn't he give us the, probably one of my favorite quotes about the Beach Boys, they blew it, they continue to blow it, they still blow it, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Jack Riley was an interesting character because I know he kind of like fabricated a lot of stuff. Like he claimed he had a Peabody Award or something. I don't know. He just came up with all this like gobbledygook. But again, I think he did a lot of good for the band, but I think it was just, they felt he was kind of like a charlatan. So they kind of got rid of him. But if Gaines' book is to, believe, is to be believed, he was involved with another man that didn't like that.
3: Also, Riley didn't want to leave Holland either. He didn't want to go back to the States. So that was another huge thing. I think nowadays, that would be able to, like a manager would be able to manage a band from Holland. Uh, and like, they'd be able to work in the States. But back in those days, it was really hard to kind of make that work. So uh, it was just like a multiple different things between uh, what Matt said um between him staying in holland uh between finding out like all these lies that he had told before um they just kind of distrusted him at that point and uh went back with uh steve love uh
0: this is also 74 with so with him departing uh, jack riley this is also around the time that i think jim Garcia became involved with the beach boys i believe i know they yeah. had like they obviously, there'd be more of a connection later with the with the Chicago tour that they would do in 75, but I know he started getting involved. I think he would play bass sometimes for them and took a bit of like a management role as well. Um, so there's that. Also, Ron Altback joined the um, live band around this time, who was formerly in, as we were talking about earlier, formerly in King Harvest, uh, who did Dancing in the Moonlight. Um, so that's interesting. So another member that would go on to be with the Beach Boys backing band for quite some time. Uh, and then also I wrote down a couple of things that I thought were amusing from, from the book, uh, that I read the beach boys in concert from around this time. So, uh, there was a show in Vancouver in, in 74 where it says, so according to Rolling Stone, while Carl was singing, Caroline No, know Mike and Dennis ran across the stage, stark naked, and then switched into each other's clothes. The streaking cousins caused Carl to crack up in the middle of his performance, Uh, which I thought was really funny. Like, I wish it would be so funny if there was, like, a a recording of that. Not I would not want to see them running across naked, but, like, just to hear Carl cracking up in the middle of that song would be pretty funny. Um, Also, there's a story, too, where I guess, like, after – this is something that happened a few times, where after the shows, like, towards the end, Dennis would, like, casually just, like, say, like, where the group was staying, like, what hotel they were at. Like, there was one where I guess he said at the end of the show, Carl Wilson's hotel room is 4,800. See you tonight. And then the band just (laughs) the band would just get pissed at him, obviously, because it's like, oh, great, you know, now people are going to be heading over there. But obviously, we know how Dennis was. I'm sure he loved that, you know, girls, stuff. So, but I just find that (laughs) amusing. Dennis sounds like he was a handful sometimes, but he
2: used to tell a Nixon joke too. I know about like. uh... It was something like uh, like Nixon like Nixon found like piss in like the sand or something, and it was like he was asking Henry Kissinger who did it, and it's like, oh, it's Trisha's or something. I think he used to tell a Nixon joke, which I thought was funny. Also, too, fun fact about James William uh, Garrico, or is that how you say it? Garcia. Yeah, yeah Garcia. Apologies. He, did you know he directed a movie, Electra Glide in Blue, in 1973? It's kind of a cult classic. Oh, really? Ah. Yeah, he also did the, I think he did the soundtrack too. Yes, he did. Yep. It's, it's a, kind of like a cult classic movie. It's a, it's, Shop Factory used to have a Blu-ray of it. I know I have it somewhere. I don't know if the Blu-ray is still in print, but uh, worth checking out.
3: Is that the one with Chicago in it? Like is it Chicago? has members
2: of Chicago in it? For Blake, it has, uh, wasn't he the one that killed his wife? Yes, he was. Or they think he killed his wife. <laughs> um. Yeah, Peter Cetera is in it. Yep, so there are some members of Chicago in it. But yeah, I know Robert Blake. Uh, he was in In Cold Blood, and he people thought he would kill his wife. That's another story, though. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, one last thing for '74. In case any of you guys don't, I, if you guys don't have anything else, um, there were also a few. We talked about this on another episode, but there were a few songs that like appeared in the set list for a short period and then went away. One of them was "Don't Talk," "Put Your Head on My Shoulder," which is an interesting inclusion for that time. Um, I, I think I mentioned that there is an audience recording of it. There might be a couple actually. Um, where you can hear like Carl singing it and it sounds really good. Um, it's a really good performance. And uh I, I would imagine at that time people didn't really know how to react to it because a lot of people were there for the oldies, and then you have this really kind of quiet, mellow song with very limited instrumentation. It's just Carl and then who was the musician you said, Justin, that they brought in to do the like the organ um, part?
3: That was Don Lewis. So they found this guy uh, named Don Lewis at a club in I think it was in LA. Um mm-hmm carl and uh dennis and jim garcio and they saw him playing like all these synthesizers and he he would sit there and he would have like a synthesizer here synthesizer here here. and they'd play like different lines and stuff and like do like a one-man show kind of thing and they thought oh this is cool like maybe we could bring this guy on the road with us and like he could be our opener or something and that's what he did and then eventually he ended up joining the band uh for a little bit i think he was not even there a year But uh, Mm. he added a lot of cool kind of stuff like that. I think that kind of inspired them to kind of bring out those those kind of older songs that they hadn't really done um, because of the instrumentation and that kind of thing. And to kind of like uh, be able to do that now. So, yeah, that was really cool.
2: So he's kind of like Rick Wakeman with like the synthesizer and all that. Exactly, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Why Rick Wakeman left David Bowie's band, I don't know. I think he added a lot to that, but that's another story. <laughs> I love his t- contributions to Hunky Dory.
1: It, 74 was also, um, people really forget, um, Ricky was still with the band for a pretty good amount of time. He actually um, played on, I think, It's Okay in that same song, played the drums. So Ricky was still with the band up until about same time same time as Blondie November. November. Yeah. November 74 is when he left. So when they were band of the year, he was still part of that band. But he left and then Dennis came back in on drums.
0: I was going to say, I think uh, I read somewhere that Ricky left because um, he, he kind of felt like the band wasn't progressing at that point. I think Ricky enjoyed playing the newer material more. And like, you know, when you keep playing the same songs over and over again, like the older material, which like, you know, the Beach Boys have been doing for years. But I think he just kind of felt like the band was kind of stagnating, which they were. So I think that's why he left from what I've read. I don't think there were any like bad feelings. I just think he wanted to do something different.
1: No, yeah, no, it wasn't. It. He was actually on the inside cover of and the summer. And then.
2: So. Yeah, he is on that. Right. Yeah. That's a pretty funky cover art. I, I think uh, <laughs> I, I bought that. I would have been like, what the hell? I mean, like, got <laughs> at the time I've been like, what the hell am I looking at? But I think it's, that actually mentions David Marks on the inside too. Right. I think that was like one of the first times they acknowledged David Marks. Cause I know, they kind of wrote him out of history for a bit there. And depending on what movie you watch, he's out of history in certain movies, too. So it's, it's nice. Murray that they...
1: wrote him out, though. Hmm? It was Murray who
2: wrote him out. Well, Murray, but also then Capital went along with it, too, for a while. And also, like I said, if you ever watch, I know it's a piece of garbage movie, but that uh, what is it called? The one from 90, Uh, whichever the one from 90 is the one with um Bruce Greenwood playing Dennis. I can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, there's no oh, David summer, Mar- Dreams. Summer, summer Dreams. Summer Dreams. Yeah, there yeah. is no. David Marks in that movie at all? It's like he never existed. So like it's kind of weird that that was perpetuated for a while. Yeah,
1: he they actually asked for uh, David back in the early seventies. I think it was seventy one, maybe seventy two or three, and because he played a show with them, and then he's like, Nah, I'm good.
3: Yeah, I think he was just in a different spot musically than uh, than the band was. Like he was really more into like bluesy, kind of harder edged kind of music at that time, kind of like hippie music. So, uh, and the beach boys were kind of still seen as kind of square at that time. So I think that's part of the reason why that didn't happen. And, and there was also some issues with Carl that he had at the time too. Um, they weren't really getting along too well. So,
0: yeah. Um, so from there, so, for, so we move on to 75 and in 1975, they had a big tour with Chicago, uh, a co-headlining tour, Um, and they would go, I believe it was mostly a lot of stadiums, right. And bigger venues that they were doing. And it sounds like it was one of the most like successful tours they had had up to that point. Um, because you're getting Chicago at that point was a huge band. They were like kind of in their prime. Uh, they had a bunch of hits around that time and, uh, the beach boys are having that resurgence in popularity because of the whole like nostalgia wave with the American graffiti and everything. Um, so it was a huge tour. I believe Chicago would usually, was it the beach boys started and then Chicago, or was it vice versa for the concert order? Order.
3: I think they would switch depending on the show. Um,
0: okay. I knew they came yeah. together at the end to play together, which I think is really they cool.
3: Would, they would come and play like different songs and different singers would sing like uh, Carl would sing a Chicago song and Peter Satira would sing a Beach Boys song. So it's kind of like really unique, uh, something that you wouldn't really hear anywhere else other than at this right. show. And I should also m- mention this year is the year that Garcia officially became manager for the band. So this is when he took over and really tooled the set list. He was kind of the guy that was uh, pushing for more oldies too at the time, uh, because he could see the audiences the way they were reacting and they were thinking of money, um, and uh, he, it, just the way that Garcia was, he was a very uh, he was very attuned to the commer- commercial commercial. Uh, uh, what would sell kind of thing. How can we make more money? How can we get more tickets sold kind of thing? Like that was kind of his, his brain at the time. Um,
0: yeah. So, um, also, yeah. Talking about like them performing together, like there's some recordings, like they're, I don't think they're great quality, but there's some audience recordings of like Carl doing Saturday in the park. And it sounds awesome. Like I want like a studio version of Carl singing Saturday in the park. Cause he sounds really good on it. Um, and then Darlin they did together, I think, which sounded really good with, like, the Chicago horn section and stuff. Um, also, this, I believe, if I remember right, this was the tour where uh, Dennis doing You Are So Beautiful, that made its debut, I think. Um, and I think the interesting thing was, if I remember right, wasn't he – I think it said he would – sometimes he would sing it with Robert Lamb from Chicago. And he was – Dennis was dating Robert Lamb's ex at the time. yeah, which yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: Oh, so you are so beautiful. Of course, sparks the. There's a. There's been a long debate about that song as to whether or not Dennis actually wrote the song because I know officially he didn't take a credit for it. But Billy Hinchy has long claimed, long claimed that he saw Dennis sit down with Billy Preston and actually, you know, do some chords on the piano. It does sound a lot like a Dennis song, I will say personally. Um, so I don't think we'll ever know for sure because the only two people in the world that know are both dead. But I, to me, no, I mean it's true. But to me, it's like I think I can hear Dennis in it. So if I believe Billy Hinshy. Like it sounds plausible. I know Brian claims he didn't write it. Bless Brian. You can't trust anything he says in an interview. So I, I kind of believe Billy Hinshey. But that's just my take on it.
0: Yeah. Like Dennis was doing a lot of like, you know, that was around the time I think he was doing more like slower ballads too. Because obviously a couple of years later, Pacific Ocean Blue came out. Um. So yeah, it does sound like something he he would write. And, and no, interestingly, I just it's coincidentally I just heard that song like the actual studio version. Um. With who is it again doing it? Um, Joe why so, Joe Cock- yeah, I just heard it on the radio today, driving home from class for like the first time in like probably over a year. So I was like, I, as soon as I heard it, I was thinking of Dennis. Like, yeah, this does sound like a Dennis song. So, do you have, uh, Justin, do you have any stories or anything from the 75 Chicago tour or anything that you want to add?
3: Yeah. So the big shows, uh, this year were, well, the biggest one was Anaheim stadium. This was like a really, uh, really, really marketed show. Um when you look back at all the all, are the all all the articles at the time, um for like a month leading up to this show, they were like really like hammering like Anaheim Stadium, they're coming, like it's gonna be a huge show, blah, 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 blah. Um, Brian actually showed up to the show. He was backstage. Um, there's a lot of pictures at the time uh with him backstage and uh with Dennis and they were playing volleyball and stuff. Um, and uh yeah he was having a good time and audrey was there and the whole family was there and uh apparently there was such a disruption with the audience like half of the um you know like in the stadium how they have like the different rungs in the stadium one of the rungs like collapsed or something because people were like um hammering down on it i guess during the songs they're getting so excited during the beach boys set like this was something that this would actually happen like different. venues too as well. Like some of the universities, they'd create damage because they were getting so into the songs, like the audience. So uh they were really, really hot at this time and this was like the biggest show of their career up to this point, I would say Anaheim Stadium in nineteen seventy five with Chicago.
2: you have an attendance figure on that?
3: Sounds like it was a shit ton of people. There was a shit <laughs> ton of people I I don't have the exact attendance right now, but it is coming in my book. Um that information is out in my book um I should also mention another show too um Wembley Stadium with Elton John this was uh, a few days later after this um this was kind of like a huge summer for them they had a bunch of different stadium shows and um they played Wembley Stadium with Elton John and they came out first and uh Elton John was like a huge 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 star in 1975 like he could do no wrong at all um and they came out first and the audience went absolutely crazy over the beach boys because they had already gotten their endless summer they've they already gotten spirit of america at this point had, had come out so they they just wanted all these oldies and uh the band delivered and um so they they left the stage and then elton john came out and he performed the entire captain fantastic album which hadn't even come out yet and everybody is like what the hell is this like why aren't you playing crocodile rock and all these other songs your song and all this stuff and and elton john uh, had a lot of really bad press because of that um but he does have that show um i think think they released it a couple years ago um his portion of the show anyways and it is out there so uh, you can hear that first um recording of captain fantastic when he plays it live
2: Fun fact about that album, too. That was the very first album, I believe, to ever debut at number one on the Billboard uh, 200. Yeah. Uh, back yeah in- cause he, Sorry, go ahead.
3: Because you could do no wrong at that time. That was like yeah, they, everybody was waiting for that album.
2: Also, too, because back then, you know, in the days before SoundScan, which I think started in 91, it was very hard to accurately trace how many records were actually being sold. You kind of just get figures from like whatever, like, you know, you caught up the record store and they tell you. But uh, somehow it was enough to get it to number one debut, which I think is pretty cool
3: really cool thing about this show too this was really hyped as well this show because it's Wembley Wembley Stadium it was the first UK gig that the band had played for I think since 72 when they were they might have been in Europe in 72 um since then they had only played in the States really and um there was actually a, a commercial that was filmed for it and Carl appeared in the commercial um yeah and he's they were just like went through the different bands that were playing, like the Beach Boys played Elton John played. there was a few other bands as well too that were popular at the time. but uh, yeah, this was probably between those two shows was those were the biggest shows of the year for the band.
0: Um, so yeah, so that was I would say that was pretty good for covering seventy five. Um yeah, like you said, they went back to the u k for the first time in several years and they had a big Chicago tour., uh, so I guess then we'll move on to seventy six, uh, which is a really big year for the band. Uh, cause this was the year that, uh, Brian, uh, rejoined the live band. Uh, now this didn't happen right away. Um, because so the Brian's back, The the whole tour for 76, the beach boys did, I believe Brian wasn't, he, so this was a big stadium tour. Uh, I believe it was Steve Love's idea to do this. And the plan was to incorporate Brian into the shows again, uh, to help sell tickets and, and, you know, get good publicity and everything. Uh, and if I remember right, like, I think Brian was at one of the first or first couple shows they did, like in like California. But then after that, he was off the road again until like the fall. Am I right on that, Justin?
3: Yeah. So this uh, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Like we can't really cover all of it today because there's there was so much going on uh, between recording and and uh, what was going on in Brian with Brian. And he wasn't really sure whether he wanted to come back or not or there was just like a lot of issues mentally with him and you had Landy coming back in. So, um, yeah, they, they, he started off, they started off in Oakland Coliseum. That was the first show that was like the official show of this tour after they had recorded 15 big ones. Um, this was kind of a big show because they weren't really sure whether Brian was actually going to, going to jump on stage or not, but he was there with the band like backstage and they started playing the show or whatever, and then in the middle of the show, uh, Billy she gets a tap on his shoulder, and it's Brian comes out. He's just like, can I play on the next couple of songs? And Billy's like, sure. Then he gets off the keyboard, and Brian sits down, and nobody uh, announced anything. And then after this, the song, Mike Mike Love announces, oh, Brian Wilson, and the person who's made all these songs. So he played for a couple show or a couple songs and then he left the stage. That was kind of like the beginning. So this show was actually filmed for the It's Okay TV special, but they actually didn't use any of the footage from this show for some reason. So it is out there somewhere in some sort of vault. Um, and then I think a couple days later or the next day, uh, they played Anaheim Stadium, and this was the one that you see on the It's Okay tv special that happened later on the year um this was a huge show as well too uh that was a shared bill with america santana and uh gerard i'm not sure who that is um yeah and this is uh he played for a few more songs on this this show i don't think he played the entire show it was like kind of half the show but uh a lot of the uh reports at this time are mentioning that he seems kind of like jerky and like he didn't seem like at ease on stage um he's kind of shy and that kind of thing so it was the beginning um stages of the the brian's back uh campaign and I don't, I don't think he was completely comfortable with it yet at this point but uh it's you'd have to say those are highlights of the band's career just to even get him on on stage after everything uh he had been through thus far especially in the last couple of years in sep- between seventy. 70- Four and, se- and 76, like, are the really bad, bad years for Brian.
0: Also, uh, around this time, um, this is so w- w- when Brian was performing with them, like he did in the fall, he would rejoin them and start doing dates regularly again. Uh, for some people, obviously, 15 big ones had come out, you know, but this was like an introduction to some people to Brian's new voice. Uh, Brian's voice had changed a ton over the past five, yeah. four or five years from years of substance abuse, smoking. Yep, that was the big one. Um, so yeah, all of a sudden, like you hear this guy that, you know, had this angelic uh, falsetto on, you know, all those early records, like Don't Worry Baby and all those classic songs. And, you know, you hear him singing like back home with this really like rough voice, you know, so it must have been a bit of like a, an eye opener to some people like, wow, like that's, that's Brian's new voice. Um, but, uh, like you said, it's cool that they were able to get him back on stage. Uh, like you said, I don't know how comfortable he was with it at the time. It definitely, from what I've read, it does kind of seem like they were really kind of just like management was really pushing him to go up there anyway, regardless of how he really felt about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think over time he kind of got more comfortable being on stage. Uh, and then also another thing too, with the, with this tour, uh, again, it's, it's mostly oldies oriented. Uh, if you if you look at some of the set lists from this time, uh, they would do some new songs from 15 big ones. Like I think they were doing like some of the covers like Palisades Park. They would do live with Carl on lead. Uh, they would do Suzy Cincinnati with Al, which I read went over really well in Cincinnati. when They did yeah. that. Uh, They had the real Susie Cincinnati, who the song was based off of, come up on stage, which I think you mentioned, Justin, in a previous yep. episode. So yeah, it was really this was a really big tour uh, for them, one of the biggest tours of that year. Uh, there was a lot of publicity with the band; they were appearing in magazine magazines, TV appearances, you know, like with the It's Okay TV special. And uh, yeah, it was just a, a huge time for the band in terms of popularity. Um, also, one thing I did not know until recently, reading the book, apparently uh, Mike got hepatitis in the fall, and they had to cancel. Uh, a bunch of dates towards the end of the year, which is pretty crazy. Uh, they said, I guess one of the guys in the book said like one of the band members looked at Mike and like he t- looked all yellow and they were like, oh, my God. like So uh, they had to cancel some dates, which was unfortunate. But yeah, it was a huge year for them.
3: That was kind of a blessing in disguise. I would say the hepatitis thing, because that gave Brian a chance to really go into the studio and start to uh, love you, because that was r- right around the period when uh, he was really able to focus on making that album like uh, at the end of
2: 76 and I just want to say one big thing for 76 too in the UK 20 golden greats came out massive seller in the UK was promoted big on TV and that was like a big thing for them that like a ton of people bought that record it was kind of like the endless summer of the UK um I don't know if you guys have ever seen that record out there Uh, probably not in the wild but uh, it was a big seller in the UK and it was like that just was a big jolt for their popularity over there too for this to come out around the same time TV promoted it like mad
3: I actually used to have that record it had uh breakaway was the last track on it
2: yep and apparently yeah. it's full of duophonic mixes so i can only imagine how good it sounded. it is it <laughs> is
3: yeah there, there's some good good uh good sounding tracks on it but some of them are duophonic yeah now that i remember it
2: yeah isn't uk vinyl in general wasn't uk vinyl in general tend to be a bit better than american vinyl
3: yeah, most yeah it was. It was. Yeah, most, that, like, most of the UK pressings were really good that I had.
2: Yeah, like they said, like if you compare like an original UK Abbey Road or white album to an American white album, night and day, like the American white album is so much worse than the UK version. <laughs> That's what the Steve pop Informs at least said. I'll take their word for it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. All right, I guess. Uh, do you have any other uh, concert stories or anything from this time, Justin?
3: Yeah, so the last one I'd like to mention is uh, when they reconvened at the end of 76 after Mike... Uh, got through hepatitis and he was able to perform again. Uh, Kind of every year around this time, they'd kind of reconvene in um, Los Angeles around Christmas time and they'd have like a bunch of like local concerts uh, around their kind of home base that they do like up into New Year. And these were kind of the highlights of the year. Like everybody was really looking forward to having the Beach Boys come home and play the songs around Christmas time and around New Year's and stuff and this year uh brian actually came uh, this was after he dropped landy so he was like performing regularly with the band at this point and um he came out in this big uh sequin black robe i think some of you have seen this pit these pictures yeah. of him like with his hands up like that and like and he's kind of making fun of himself and he was able to kind of see like the kind of light side of his issues that he had um his issues were very well pub- publicized at this point like going back to like 74 there's even articles and stuff about him not uh uh participating and uh being in his in his bed and that kind of stuff so uh he it's good that he was able to kind of make light of that and to kind of move on uh but i still think at this point he's he still wasn't completely there he uh he didn't really want to be there to be honest i don't think but it it was just a matter of uh, everybody else around him kind of pushing him to go up and to kind of take that center uh role which he really didn't want to take anymore um
0: i I was just listening to a radio interview with brian recently from like the late 70s around that time i don't even think i'd heard it before it was with uh peter fornatelli or somebody uh and they And he was saying how he asked him about that. He asked, like, how did you feel? How do you feel about like, you know, your your own issues, your own personal issues being so out there to the world, you know? And he said, like, you know, it doesn't feel great. Like when, like, you know, like magazines and stuff like put him down, you know, like that. But um, he said he's okay with he was okay with it, though. He said, like, it's one of those things where, like, you know, he's 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 honest about it. And uh I don't think he necessarily like hated that like it was so out there. I think he was kind of just used to it at that point. He would talk about it like openly in inter- interviews how like he'd go he went through this like recluse period, you know, where like he wasn't leaving his room often and stuff. Again, some of that's exaggerated, you know, like I'm sure he wasn't yeah. like people say he was just laying in bed for like years straight. Like no, he wasn't doing that, but I mean like, you know, he wasn't going out often. You weren't seeing him anywhere. So,
3: yeah. And he was he was over in the uh the other section, they, like there was the house, and then there was the, um, uh, what is it called? The court, quor- the quarters, the show uh, uh, first quarters, mm-hmm. which was a completely different building than the house. So he was over in a completely different building from Marilyn and the kids. So he's kind of like isolated, and uh, just listening to "Be My Baby" a lot, <laughs> and uh, eating a lot of food and. Uh, he was looking at a lot of porn and stuff like that. And yeah, so just, uh, he was just living off of his hundred thousand dollars a year that he was making from royalties. That was kind of like what they said was like the, uh, what he typically made at that point. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, he was just, he was kind of lost. So
1: like I, I don't Hughes.
3: think, yeah, like, yeah like, I don't like Howard Hughes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think Bruce Johnson actually uh, said something about how, that he's similar to Howard Hughes at that point or something. Uh, there's some <laughs> quote around that time.
0: Um, all right. So uh, I guess we'll move on to 77 now. So it's 1977. So this is a really interesting year for the band. Not really in a positive way because there was a lot of turmoil going on around this time. Uh, so the turmoil within the group, a lot of it was over management. Uh, Mike and Al wanted Steve Love back running the band from what I remember, uh, but Carl and Dennis didn't like, they were kind of, they were on one side and then Mike and Al were on another, which seems to be the case with the, with those pairings in general. It seemed like you had like Carl and Dennis were like the more creative side of the band. They wanted to keep going in a more progressive direction while Mike and Al were kind of like, you know, why, why change what we're already doing? You know, like the fans want to hear the oldies. So like, let's just keep doing that, you know? So they were two kind of opposing sides there. Um, and then the big controversy was Brian ended up joining Mike and Al's side. Uh, the band would like have like votes on different, different issues, like what direction we go. And I guess it was kind of an unexpected thing that happened, but Brian just one day just joined Mike and Al. Um, and this really pissed off Dennis and Carl. And, uh, there was a big fight that happened on uh, airport tarmac in, in New Jersey, uh, after a show, um you want to give some details on that justin uh i feel like i've read a little bit about it i think i read that um was it something where like brian wanted to get off the plane and go with somebody to like go with dennis or something and then they were going against it do you want to kind of elaborate on that a little bit
3: yeah so um yeah like there's they kind of knew that something was going to happen that day like there was a bunch of stuff that was happening at that point they like they knew that there was going to be a blow-up like carl even said like don't go on that plane dennis like there's going to be a blow-up kind of thing um but of course Dennis you know Dennis the way that he is uh he went and caused shit on on Mike's plane and then uh created a huge problem and um yeah there's like a lot of issues going on with the band at the time and I I should kind of rewind a little bit because I want to talk a little bit leading up to that like what it what exactly happened so um in the beginning of 1977 um Mike went off to Switzerland with the Maharishi to uh, learn how to levitate. That was kind of like the the thing that was happening. Um, and uh, so now we have Brian and Carl kind of just in the studio working on some material. And Dennis is working out on Pacific Ocean Blue at the time. And then Al's up in Big Sur uh, with his family um, looking after his farm and doing that kind of thing, uh, which was his passion at the time. So anyways, um, when Mike was gone, they had fired Steve Love after Steve Love had given, uh, or he had signed for Mike for the CBS contract, which had recently come through. Um, so, okay, so they had released Lovey, first of all. Mm-hmm. And then they had gotten a contract for, for uh, CBS Caribou Records from Jim Garcia um it was a huge amount of money that they made uh off this contract and they got a huge advance for for recording and everything and uh mike was still in switzerland so he couldn't sign for the papers so steve had to sign for mike and mike wasn't too happy about that um because there was something in the contract that said um like mike can't record outside of the band or something. It was something there was some sort of like uh limit on his being able to record solo albums and that kind of thing, which Mike wanted to do at that point. So, anyways, um everybody's kind of upset with Steve Love at this point, even Mike. So they had fired Steve Love at this point. And Mike's still in Switzerland. And Carl met this guy named Henry Lazarus. Um he was kind of I think he was this radio, he was a radio guy. Um And uh, he had recently started uh, a company with his family, like a management company, entertainment management. And um, uh, Lazarus actually flew to Switzerland to meet with Mike uh, to kind of get his blessing uh, on like starting, uh, preparing for tours and that kind of stuff for the summer. So he had met with Mike and he had written his address on a piece of paper or something. And Mike says, oh, that's my old address. How do you have my old address? And he's like, well, I live there now. So this Henry Lazarus guy lived in the same house that Mike used to live in. And that, and then Mike Love said, it's written in the, star, in the stars or something that you're to be our manager at this point. So that kind of, uh, he got the blessing of Mike and he got the blessing of Carl to, to manage, manage them. So Lazarus took over. And anyways, he ended up um, booking this huge uh, UK tour for them. They hadn't been in to the UK since that uh, Wembley show. That was the only show, really, in the last like five years that they had played. And of course, the UK loves the Beach Boys. So um, it was quite. Uh, there was a lot of articles and stuff at the time about it, about all these different shows. They had a lot of different bands. Uh, Barclay, James Harvest, The Outlaws, Bonnie Raitt, Dr. Feelgood. Uh, Dave Edmonds, Rock Pile, these were all bands that were going to open for them on these shows. So Lazarus, um, he was kind of new in managing, so he didn't get everything. Um, He didn't get the right papers, he didn't get the right uh, work permits, he didn't uh, secure the hotel reservations or anything for them. So it was just like a huge disaster. And and Carl had already gone over to the UK to promote all these shows and stuff. He appeared in all these papers with his face like his face and um all these interviews and stuff. And it just made them look really stupid after after all that hard work um, that they weren't able to get everything together. So they canceled all these shows because they couldn't go over there, because they didn't have any papers, they didn't have any permits or whatever. So the fans are just absolutely livid at this point. And then the band goes over and plays an industry insider show only at the uh, CBS convention in London, England. This was supposed to be a day when they were playing Wembley Stadium. So they already canceled this Wembley Stadium show and then they went and played the CBS convention. And of course the fans hear, oh, the Beach Boys are in town, but why did they cancel our show? Why are they playing for industry insiders? So this was, they were really, really upset uh, with the band, like the, the public. There was a lot of articles at the time. Um, even Al Jardine, um, uh, they had an interview with Al Jardine for one, which is really rare at the time. He didn't really give a lot of interviews at the time. And uh, he said something like, oh, I guess uh, our reputation's taken a little bit of a hit now. So uh, what can we do kind of thing? <laughs> but um Anyways, Bruce Johnston was in the crowd at this show, and uh, he recalled uh, that at one point Mike was grabbing Brian's piano and he was lifting it up and down and and like dropping it on the ground, like he was mad with Brian or something. Um, was, he said it was like really bizarre to to see this, like it was just you could see kind of like all their dirty laundry uh, kind of being aired out uh, in front of all these industry indus- insiders and um, there's a bunch of different like musicians there and um i think springsteen was there there's was a few few other whoever was on uh, columbia cbs at the time too uh maybe bob dylan i think was there as well too
2: was billy joel there i know he was signed to columbia
3: possibly possibly um i'd have to go back and check my notes on that but there was a bunch of different like people that saw that <laughs> But they said regardless of that, like the show went over pretty well. Um, people really loved the the hits, you know, like the hits kind of took the the presidents over everything. So they played that on July thirtieth, and then um, they'd played a f- few other shows in in America up to that point. And Dennis had mentioned uh, to Pete Fortunato, which is the guy that that interviewed Brian, uh, that you mentioned, uh, Jake. Um, he was kind of like a ambassador of the band at the time he was uh, a radio dj out of um new york uh for the station called w new uh w n e w um and uh he did like a lot of interviews with the guys over the years and he did an interview with dennis and dennis said something about oh i'd love to do a free show in central park uh with the band just to kind of like celebrate the band and to uh just get let get everybody together and uh, have a nice, peaceful show. So they ended up making this happen. It was like a huge event. Um, I'm sure all of you guys have seen pictures from it. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, Charles Lloyd was there, and all of them, like the whole band and everything. You could see them like dancing around in the videos and stuff. But um, it was after that show, uh, I think it was Newark, was where, where the uh, the tarmac uh, in New Jersey the Tarmac uh episode came. So even though they had this great peaceful show and everything uh, uh, after the Central Park show there was still like fighting going on between the band especially between the factions of the different band who are traveling in different planes at this point. Uh there was a, a prop plane which Carl and uh Dennis usually traveled in with the backing musicians. And then uh Mike and Al had like the main plane that they went in with uh whoever was in the TM at the time in the band or like the people around them. I think the road manager at the time was uh a TM guy as well, too. So um yeah, anyways, uh they landed the plane in Newark uh to refuel. And this is when Carl was like, Dennis, don't go in there. Like you're gonna create like a huge problem. And Dennis, um because they had already, Mike and Al had already been talking about replacements for uh, Dennis and Carl because they wanted to get rid of them. Because this was how bad the fighting was going on at the time. Anyways, um, he said, "Don't, don't go in there. You're gonna create a huge problem. Let's just like let this kind of blow over and uh, see what happens from there." But Dennis goes in, and he, and he went right into Mike's face and Al's face and like you want to get replacements for us blah 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 blah. and then like it created a huge fight that ended up coming out of the plane onto the tarmac it was um, Dennis, Mike, Steve Love, and Stan Love all kind of in a circle and then there was a reporter for Rolling Stone magazine that kind of witnessed this whole kind of uh, ordeal which was kind of embarrassing for the band especially after after they'd been through this whole UK tour and uh all the the issues with that so um there was some yelling and and some insults and uh swearing and stuff back and forth that was uh really unfavorable um meanwhile the the plane engines are running and stuff for both the play <laughs> so it's like something you see out of a movie you know like screaming at one another and um, but the the main thing too was that Brian had wanted to, uh, or actually Dennis was with Karen Lamb, and he wanted to stay in New York uh, to kind of like take in the nightlife at the time. And then they said, oh, we'll just go on a on a commercial flight back home tomorrow. And Mike didn't want that. And uh, Brian said, oh, I'll I'll go with them and we'll kind of like see the nightlife together. And and that made him even more upset. So. Um, yeah it was just it was just a a blow up that was kind of waiting to happen because of just various issues with the band and um after this whole fight and and the whole it was all published in Rolling Stone magazine like a couple weeks later after that and i must mention too like uh, if you look at all the articles in the the newspaper um like all the different papers all across the US um that, like from that point to the end of the year a lot of them mentioned this, this um, that the Beach Boys are breaking up, kind of thing, and like this was like a huge kind of underlying current at the point, at this point. So, anyways, um, after all this happened, they kind of went their own separate ways, and uh, they had this big meeting at Brian's house, and each person had an attorney present. This is how ridiculous it got it at this point. Like each band member had an attorney present, and I think Marilyn was there as well too. And um, they just kind of talked through their different issues. And this is when Mike came up with the idea of um, recording at MIU and creating a, a studio there. And uh, because the, uh, the Beach Boys had planned, they had had their brother's studio, which was in Santa Monica. And um, Mike kind of wanted to get them away from that and to get them away from the drugs and get them away from kind of the party living and that kind of thing and and into more of a uh, meditative kind of state um, for the next album. He thought that would be useful because uh, they just had so many issues going on. So, yeah, that was that was
0: that. Uh, yeah, I read a quote from Mike that year. Cause I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the live act at that time too. But, um, there's a quote from Mike, I guess that he said he insisted that all non-meditators be fired that were in the band around that time. So you, uh, Billy Hinsche was gone. They did. Uh, yeah. Gary Griffin replaced Carly Munoz on keyboards. Mike Kowalski took over for Bobby Figueroa on percussion. Um, I think Ron Haltback was, uh, T was he a TM guy or no? I've <laughs>
3: He was a teacher. He was a TM teacher.
0: Okay. So he was good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I think I yeah. read he had some altercation with Carl at some point where like he right. like, he ran into Carl somewhere, like a hotel or something. And he was like, Hey Carl, you know, like I'm joining the band now. And Carl's like, fuck off or something. So obviously he wasn't real yeah. that. Um but yeah, so, so
3: I he, I wanna mention about Altpock because uh I think I mentioned this before that he had a, a kind of a rocky relationship with a member of, of the band and that was Carl. Uh, throughout his entire tenure with the band, he, uh, him and Carl did not get along at all, which is really unusual because you talk to any musician about Carl and all of them tell you, like, oh, he was, like, such a great guy and uh, such a sweetheart and, like, he was always so nice to me. But Altbach um, said that him and Carl clashed from day one, like, Carl did not like him at all.
0: Yeah, I think there's a quote from him, actually, from Altbach saying, like, he said something like, I know Carl was a really nice guy and everybody loved him, but like, we just never meshed is what he said. Um, yeah. But anyway, so getting to like the touring act around that time, so uh, so in terms of the concerts, um, this was kind of an interesting period because they were incorporating some interesting songs into the set list, despite it being still pretty oldies heavy. There were some interesting, so- interesting songs that they were playing in 77. Uh, they had a couple of songs from Love You that they were playing live, which is pretty cool. They were doing Airplane Live, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, I think they did Love as a Woman sometimes. Love as a Woman, yeah. Whatever. Yep. Uh they they also were doing feel flows, uh, All This Is That, which thumbs up. Uh Back Home from Fifteen Big Ones, Susie Cincinnati. Uh occasionally they would do something like honking down the highway too, which is pretty cool. I think they only did it a few <laughs> times, but it definitely appeared at least once or twice in the set list. Um yep. And uh, in terms of, like, the backing band around that time, so before Mike ended up firing everybody, uh, Billy Hinchy was in the band, Carly Munoz was in the band, Charles Lloyd, uh, who was a really talented and successful musician up uh, before that, I believe.
3: Yeah,
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah, he was was a jazz musician. Yeah, so it was a really talented uh, backing group that they had with them uh one in terms of like what the concerts look like around this time there's a recording of the show at washington in washington dc in january of of 1977 um and it's an interesting show because like i think the band had been drinking the night before i think it was like new year's or it was something they are some like and they had been drinking so it's definitely not the strongest show especially you can definitely hear it in carl carl is definitely out of it um, singing yeah. songs like, like, I'm like, all oh, this is that and stuff. Carl's really out of it. But um, it's, it's a cool, it's cool to hear the band doing songs like Airplane Live. And that record, that, it's one of the only recordings of them doing it. So it's very cool to see. And I, if I remember right, isn't that from like the video feed, like the video board at the, uh, at the stadium?
3: Yeah. So this was kind of something that was new at the time. They had these kind of jumbotrons on the side, each side of the stage, mm-hmm. uh, which up to that point, like you go to a, sh- a concert, like you'd go to, uh, Paul McCartney and Wings and you just see Paul McCartney on the stage and that would that'd be it you know like you just see that little tiny little figure on the stage mm-hmm. with the Jumbotrons now you could see his face and you could see his reactions and you could see the, his base and whatever and and the Beach Boys took advantage of this and a lot of the other venues uh, started having these on the sides of the stage so what the Beach Boys did was they uh, recorded some of these and uh, put them on videotape and kind of stored them away. So there is a um, a feed from that the, the jumbotron uh, available. I think it's on YouTube for that show. There's mm-hmm. a couple couple shows, uh, Mar- Maryland shows, yeah.
0: Also, like show. no no yeah, going back to like Carl during that show, like I think it's during All This Is That or one of the songs they cut to Carl and like they're zooming yeah, he's in his like, face and he's like. Like get the camera off of me. Like I am. Yeah, not. yeah. yeah. You
3: um,
2: say it was January of '77. It might have been. Was it Carter's inauguration? It might have been around that time.
0: Yeah, probably was. I think. I feel like you're right. I feel like you're I right. Think
2: they, I think they played both. I think I read they played both Carter and Reagan, which I thought was interesting. The dichotomy oh. was right. You're right.
0: Uh, two two last quick things I wanted to mention. So this is around the time Carl started having some issues with his personal life. Uh, his relationship was kind of falling apart at this point. I believe he would go through a divorce not long after this point. Also, he started having back pain issues, um, which really started to affect him, especially in 78, which we're about to get to. Uh, and then the one other thing I wanted to mention is that Dennis was planning a tour for Pacific Ocean Blue around this time, but that unfortunately did not happen. It would have been really cool if it did. Uh, I'm sure we'd have some live recordings of him doing those songs if if he had done that tour, which would have been really cool to hear. Um, But unfortunately, that just didn't happen. From what I've read, Dennis wasn't exactly the most confident performer. Uh, Also, he had his own issues at this time. You know, this was really like when like the alcohol started really becoming an issue with Dennis. Obviously, he'd been drinking for a little bit up to this point. But like now it was starting to become an issue. Um, Yeah, I
2: just want to add one thing quick about the Dennis tour, too. The other thing I heard the reason why I never went on was because he was insisting on having a big orchestra section and caribou. No. no. So I've heard that it was a combination of that and also because the drinking, like you said, he wasn't reliable because I think it was going to be like a like a theater tour It was going to be like a pretty small it wasn't going to be like big stadiums yeah. or anything. But he was very insistent on he wanted a whole orchestra section to, you know, replicate the parts. And they said, no way.
3: <laughs> There's also rumors, too, that the band um, basically said, if you go on this tour, that's it.
2: You're yeah, because I think they were really jealous of Pacific Ocean Blue. I think they, they were, were
3: they were really jealous. They got they good were really
2: reviews. jealous. Actually outsold whatever they put out at the time, so they were really jealous. I think Dennis even said something like, "Yeah, they're just jealous of my record." And I think this was around the time he said that Al couldn't play like three notes or something. I don't remember.
3: <laughs> that that yeah. was the tarmac fight. Yes, yes, all around <laughs> the same.
2: '77
0: was a was an interesting year for sure. Yeah, and Dennis wasn't even thrilled with the Beach Boys product at that time because this. Is, he said that oh. quote of IU that he hopes it f's up Mike's karma for for life up, or whatever. That was the structural fucks that, up Mike's love Yeah. Okay. So I guess we'll move on to 78 now. So uh, 1978 is kind of like the low point for the band in terms of touring uh, because uh, they were having a lot of issues, specifically Carl. Uh, so they had a really rough tour in Australia and New Zealand that year uh, to start the year, I believe. Um, Carl was really going through a lot. Like I said, he had his uh, the divorce. He was going through the, his relationship falling apart. Also the back pain he was under constantly. Um, so he was under the influence on stage. And it really affected the shows really badly. Um, People, there was uh, a couple of shows, and I don't know if it was Sydney or which city it was, but I guess uh, Carl was so out of it that like fans were demanding refunds. That's how bad it was. And the the band had to have this whole press conference at a hotel where they had to explain what happened. Um, Which again, it's like normally, when you think of issues within the Beach Boys, like you think of like, you know, Dennis, like not showing up to concerts or just being drunk. You don't really think of Carl having the issues, but this was a really tough period for him. Um, Also, you had the altercation that Carl had with uh, Rocky Pamplin around this time, uh, where, I guess, so Brian had obtained some drugs uh, while on the tour, and I guess he was acting crazy on stage for one of the shows, from from what I read. Um, And, yeah, Carl was under the influence, too. And uh, I guess one of these shows uh, where Brian had gotten drugs or whatever uh carl made a comment he said um nice going bodyguards good job watching brian something like that and then uh, rocky pamplin who was their uh uh, the bodyguard for the band at the time uh just knocked carl out cold and he had a black eye and i read again this is from i think the Gaines book so you know you can't trust everything in there but from what it sounds like like he the black eye was so bad that like you know they were like doing work on him like in like the makeup room you know trying to cover it up and i guess like carl was afraid to even leave the room and like go near rocky because like he was afraid he was going to beat the shit out of him again so it just sounds like a really like tense period for the band uh this is also when dennis started really becoming an addict with like others like besides just drinking uh this is when he was introduced to heroin supposedly um brian starts struggling again around this time because he had been doing better for a while um and now he starts struggling again um there's a story. Uh, I'll let you guys talk in a minute here. But there's a story from um, a, a, tr- a concert in Canada, actually, uh, Justin. Uh, so it was from the Calgary show. And I guess what happened was they were making the trip to Calgary. And uh, this was July of 1978. Uh, apparently, Dennis took the furniture from two or three other rooms as a prank and stuffed it into Carl's hotel room while he was sleeping so that Carl couldn't get out of the room. Uh, so as a result, they were late for the commercial flight and missed it. So they had to lease eight or 10 four seat planes to fly from Seattle to Calgary. And apparently while they were flying, the planes were low on oxygen, or at least one of the planes, they ran out of oxygen or like the sensor on the plane. It was, they thought it was giving a faulty reading. So then they tapped the, uh, the sensor and the thing dropped to zero and they were like, Oh shit. Like what a nightmare. Uh, yeah. But thankfully they made it. But, uh, that's another example of like Dennis kind of causing chaos. Um, I yeah tour you know like i mean like what like you know the band has places to go and dennis is like too busy like doing pranks like you know locking carl in his own hotel room like jesus christ um <laughs> yeah do you want to add anything to uh, the 78 australia tour or any of the things going on in 78 justin or, or matt
3: yeah. yeah so there's a show available uh on youtube i think it's the sydney meyer music bowl in melbourne mm-hmm. uh it was either march 8th or Mar- march 9th it was broadcast on australian tv uh for you those of you that have seen this show it is a mess it is an absolute mess i think dennis is the only wilson brother that's actually in it in it um brian is out of it carl is out of it um al's kind of uh <laughs> save me now kind of thing is his face and mike uh is just kind of like turning a blind eye towards everything so it's pretty bad um it's like the beach boys and charles lloyd basically. So uh <laughs> uh yeah, like you said, Carl, his marriage was on the rocks. He turned to drugs and alcohol to kind of cope with that. He also had that back pain that started up in seventy six after um that uh the sparklets water bottle dropping that.
2: Um, right. Yeah, I think Carl Carl's back was actually killed by he lifted up a TV badly, which you know, those old CRT TVs that weighed like a gajillion pounds. I think Dennis was the one who dropped the water bottle that cracked open his toe or something.
3: Yeah, he did. he dropped the water bottle too. That he was helping Carl because Carl okay. couldn't do it anymore. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, thought- yeah, That's what I that's what I read. Really, I read a TV. Yeah. Who knows?
0: Um, another thing that was interesting with '78, with uh, Bruce begins making appearances again with the band. Uh, later in the year, I believe, like in the fall, Bruce starts appearing again. Uh, he had yeah. obviously been out of the band since around 72, which I don't know if we really talked about when we were talking about that period, but Bruce had left around the time that I think Ricky and, and Blondie joined. Um, I know he contributed a little <laughs> to like Carl Mashons. I think he's on a track on tracks on there, but, uh, he had left the touring band. Um, but then yeah, he rejoined, um, obviously produced LA, which we can get to in a little bit here. Um, but yeah, so he was back in the band.
3: Yeah. So. The main, uh, let, let me actually just rewind a little bit because I want to talk about a show in August okay. uh, at Boston Garden. Uh, this was kind of a, a really tragic show and showed you how far kind of the band had gone at that point with like the, the drinking and the drugs and that kind of stuff. Um, they hadn't, it was a show at Boston Garden. They hadn't arrived on stage until 10.05 p.m. That's when they took the stage. That's how late they were. And um, Dennis was, like, really, really drunk at the show, and they had to carry him off the stage. Like, this is how bad it got. Um, I should mention one of the the kind of funny things that the reporter says in the article about this show. It's kind of, it doesn't have to do with Dennis or anything, but uh, he said, it would be interesting one day to match Al Jardine of the Beach Boys and Bob Flanagan of the Four Freshmen in a high register cutting session. A mass nosebleed might result. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was kind of funny. But uh yeah, so that that was kind of like a really low point for the band and and like the uh Australian tour, like we mentioned, the Perth show was like the main one where Carl um just completely lost it. So then we fast forward to the end of 1978. Uh they're at Criteria Studios, which is the BG studio in uh Miami, Florida, mm-hmm. and uh they're starting to record what was to become the light album la uh obviously didn't have a title at that point this was supposed to be brian kind of helming the ship again and after miu when he was kind of kind of there but he wasn't really um and then here he was supposed to kind of like helm the ship again and to really contribute and uh after a couple days of doing vocals and stuff he couldn't do any high register stuff. He could like, he was just not happy with his performance, and neither neither was Ben. So, anyways, on his insistence, he called up Bruce Johnston, and he thought maybe maybe Bruce can jump in and do some of these high high register uh, vocals. Although I don't know why Al couldn't do them, since that that reporter had said uh, <laughs> him and uh, Bob Flanagan would be in a in a cutting session for high registers. But anyways, um. Bruce came down to Criteria. He was like all ready to go. And uh, I think that he really missed being in the band. And uh, so he came and he helped them kind of sort through their material, which was pretty scattershot at this point. There wasn't a lot of good um, stuff. I think they they assembled a a tape for um, Walter Yetnikoff, who was the president of uh, CBS. And he heard this tape and he was just like, (laughs) <laughs> oh my god what do we have here like i've just been fucked he i think was uh, <laughs> his uh quote that came out of his mouth but uh if you hear some of the songs that they had going on like even california feeling like at that point like i know they remixed it for made in california and everything but it was just it wasn't finished it was not finished and um it just needed a lot more work and anyways they were performing shows in between doing these recording sessions because they were like under deadline to they were way behind in in delivering this album to CBS um we'll talk about more, more about this kind of back uh what's going on in the background kind of information in another episode but um anyways they're playing this show at Lakeland um Civic Center in Lakeland Florida on September 3rd this was kind of uh one of Bruce's first shows back and he's just kind of being advertised as just kind of helping the band out. He's not really in the band at this point. He's just kind of helping them out on stage and kind of helping with the harmonies. But he's still going to go off and do his, his solo stuff again after a few shows. kind of. So anyways, um, they're coming out for the encore. And Carly Muno starts playing the intro to You Are So Beautiful. And Dennis, of course, is wasted at this show. So he comes out. Dennis comes out. And he's, they're playing You Are So Beautiful, and then Dennis goes, goes up to the mic and he says, Bruce Johnston. And then Bruce com- comes running out and plays I Write the Songs instead. <laughs> they, had, they stopped You Are So Beautiful and played I Write the Songs, and then they played You Are So Beautiful after. So was, that was kind of a, a moment where Bruce had to kind of jump in like, really quick and to, to kind of uh, save the day because of, of all the issues going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like around this time, like you never knew what was going to happen on stage with the with the live band. Yeah. You had Dennis drunk at most of the concerts. Carl wasn't in great shape for for quite a bit of this year. Um, so yeah, you just never knew what you were going to see on stage. Um, I, yeah. only, I do have one other story I wanted to quote from the book. I just knew I had to share this one just because it, it's <laughs> this might be the funniest the thing I laughed at the most reading the book. Uh, so this one was from a July concert uh, from 78 in Minnesota. Uh, So it says this Beach Boys appearance before 13,000 was a huge success. However, the concert was almost derailed by Dennis, of course. Uh, He wandered off stage early and returned later in a clearly drunken state. He then proceeded to ad lib introductions for band members, introducing Carl as the legendary Kenny Wilson before actively (laughs) requesting booze from the crowd. He exclaimed, come on, let's hear some booze. Get vicious. Uh, The rest of the group did their best to ignore him, but he commanded a spare keyboard and played off-key chords. Uh, Tim Carr of the Minneapolis Tribune reported, Love was obviously upset, but Brother Carl seemed to be taking it in stride and was laughing along with his brother's fraternity-style pranks. Uh, But the concert was in jeopardy of becoming uh, shambles. Then Dennis reclaimed the drums and he began funneling his nervous energy into the music and kicked the band into a rousing final burst, propelling the songs along at a full tilt pace. So, sounds like the concert ended up going okay in the end, but... uh, I just love picturing Dennis, you know, just like slapping a keyboard and, you know, just saying like, you know, asking the audience to boo and stuff. It's just like, oh, my God, this band, like Jesus.
2: Can I share a few <laughs> things? about This is quick. Uh, first thing, Australia. So we mentioned Australia asked for refunds. They have a history of doing this. Um, Judy Garland played a bunch of shows in the 60s in Australia. One show went well. One show she had her. you know, She had a lot of problems, too. They hated it. They booted her off the stage. Whitney Houston, you can actually go watch this on YouTube, played some of her final concerts. And God bless her. Her voice was shot at the end. Woo, Australia hated it. They were like, it was the worst concert I ever saw. Like They just trashed the shit out of it. Um, And I remember Carl, I think, actually did an interview. Where he's like, well, I, I had a Valium and I drank two Mai Tais. So that's why the show was the way it was, which I thought was interesting. Um, Another thing, too. And then uh, speaking of Rocky Pamplin, this is quick. He wrote a book. Never read it, but it's out there. So if anyone wants to read it, be my guest. And final thing I'm going to say, and this is quick, I got this from, so this is actually cited, this is on Wikipedia, but this is from the um, the real Beach Boy, the Stebbins book. It says, in 1978, following a concert in Arizona, so Justin, you might have more information as to when it was in 78, Dennis was arrested for sharing drugs and alcohol with a 16-year-old girl in his hotel room. He claimed it was a setup, and he paid $100,000 in legal fees. So <laughs> i just going to show you uh, where Dennis's mind was. Do you know exactly when that was, Justin, when they played Arizona in 78? Do you know like exactly? Arizona? Was
3: like, Let me... See if I can find that. Seventy-eight? Seventy eight,
2: nineteen seventy-eight. This is from yeah, the step. I,
0: I remember reading that story too. It's in it's in the book. Yeah, it sounds like it was a complete a total mess.
3: Was it yeah, the, oh, was it the uni- University of Arizona?
0: It just says it's Wikipedia just says
2: Arizona. It doesn't mention what concert.
3: They played a couple of shows. Arizona State U at on the twenty second of April and University of Arizona on the twenty third of April.
2: Okay, it was in the springtime.
3: Yeah, it was Got in it. the springtime.
2: Got it. Yeah, so yeah, well, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Dennis definitely exemplified that lifestyle, right? <laughs> that's all, and I'm good. That's that's all my uh, my thoughts on Seventy. So,
3: like, one of the things too at this point was um, his on and off again thing with Karen Lamb. Uh, they got married twice actually. Um, I think that she did a lot of good for him in the way that she kind of inspired him to kind of push his uh, his creative. Uh. Make his creative juices kind of come out and to uh, come up with Pacific Ocean Blue and Bamboo and all this kind of stuff. But I think on the other hand, too, she was kind of also self-destructive, too, because she had a heroin habit as well, too. And that's where they kind of shared in that kind of thing. So I think if both of them were able to kind of clean it up and to uh, kind of move on past both their issues, because they both had issues with relationships, uh, just like being able to to... To be with one another, kind of thing. Um, he would have made it through, because he really loved he really loved Karen Lamb.
0: Mhm. Um. Also, one yeah, one other thing before we move on to seventy nine. Um, wasn't this the year that they started doing that country pie song or whatever in the right. set? Yeah. Yeah. What was the story with that again? Who wrote that?
3: Yeah. So the uh two members of King Harvest wrote "Winds of Change," which was uh the closing track on M I U. I'm not 100% sure if that was uh, written for them or if it was written for the Beach Boys. Uh, That's kind of, the information's not really out there. And uh, Ron Altbach is dead now, so you can't really ask him about that. But um, they also wrote another song called Country Pie, which they were performing, uh, I think, around the Australian tour. That's when they kind of started uh playing this this song and it kind of really went over well with the audience and the audience really got into it and mike kind of told them these are the words before before they sing the song and you sing the song with us and we'll point to you in this this verse starts we'll point to you in this chorus starts kind of thing and got them really involved in it so the audience was kind of waiting for um the beach boys to record this song but they never did so yeah
0: um all right, I guess we can move on to 79. Riley, do you have any thoughts on on this <laughs> period with with uh, the Beach Boys? I know, I, have you heard the Australia shows? Because they are pretty rough
1: to to hear, especially Carl. I haven't heard them in a long time. I think when I was initially kind of getting into that era of the band, I I, I looked at a bunch of shows, but I haven't listened to any of the Australia shows in a while. So, mm-hmm. not much to say, but I do love LA Light. <laughs> well, I know you. Do. <laughs> All right. Well, so, I- yeah, I- I that Rocky Pamplin died not too
2: long ago. Yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, uh, um, all, right, all right, we'll move on to 79, I guess. So, uh, so, so 79, so this was another kind of year of turmoil with the Beach Boys. Um, so first off, I think we have to talk a little bit about the disastrous concert debut of Here Comes the Night uh, from L.A., Uh, So this was the Beach Boys trying to hop on the disco bandwagon. Uh, It was Bruce Johnson's idea, from what I've read and heard. Uh, He thought it would be a great thing for the band to do, uh, as disco was really popular at the time. Um, And uh, the track itself, I've shared my opinion on it. I think it's dog shit. Um, But uh, anyway, uh, so the band debuted it at Radio City Music Hall, which I believe New York. Um, And from what I've read, uh, the crowd literally booed them uh they were booing them uh dennis hated the song as well uh, so i'm sure dennis didn't care from what i've read actually dennis sometimes wouldn't even play on it like he would just refuse to leave
3: the stage he'd leave the stage
0: (laughs) which is like such a bold thing to do just to like i'm not gonna play this but like it kind of shows the tensions within the band at that time i think he would do it occasionally with like al songs too from what i read like he did it with like lady linda or some other song too um anyway uh see dennis didn't like that song they dropped it very quickly uh, i think only a few dates they did it and even though it was this like big single that they were promoting uh it didn't do much on the charts and then it just disappeared from the setlist never to be heard again thankfully um also uh another a little story from 79 that i wrote from the book uh that so there was uh i think this was the radio city music hall shows actually because they did multiple nights uh it said dennis played all four nights but was drunk on at least two and seemed bent on creating controversy, one night he sported a t-shirt that said, pity about Mike Love, um, which I think is just really funny. (laughs) Like, I just like, that's like such a, like the fact that like he custom made this t-shirt and just said pity about Mike Love and comes out there, you know, it's just like, oh my God, like like you said, um, you can literally see how dysfunctional the band is just watching them on stage. Like you can just see from the interactions from like, you can just see how much tension there is. Um, So yeah, it just sounds like a really tense period still. Um, there were members of the backing band were fired around this time as well, such as Charles Lloyd and Sterling Smith. Um, I think the reasoning for that was because LA was not selling well and the band was not, I think financially, it wasn't going great at that time. So they had to start cutting people and, uh, Lloyd was one of the first to go. Uh, and then I think the, the big thing for this year, which, I mean, you can add a little to this too. I'm sure Justin, uh, was Dennis physically attacking Mike at a concert, uh, that was this year in 79, yeah. Um so he was spiraling out of control at this point uh with drugs and drinking he already had been but it was really getting bad at this point uh and the story is that i guess um mike was getting pissed at dennis on stage cuz he was drunk and you know causing chaos as usual and um i guess dennis eventually just had enough like mike kept kind of like jumping up over there like kind of trying to like you know get get at dennis and dennis had enough and he just like threw his drumsticks and just chased mike uh down the stage, and then they were just having an all-out brawl, and the whole crowd. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. it was just a nightmare for the band, you know, like, that, that they're all witnessing this, like, them having their, you know, their bad blood on stage in front of everybody. Uh, so then and I found this amusing. So when the band returned to the stage, they took a uh, unscheduled intermission. And when they returned to the stage, he said, Mike made a speech downplaying the incident to the audience. Then Dennis appeared, grabbed a microphone, and began to repeat the words, I love Mike, love, over and over again. Uh, which is like, I can like picture like a drunken Dennis just going like, I love Mike Love. I love, you know, like with his like, raspier voice at the time. yeah yeah, yeah, um, yeah and then I guess after that, despite that, uh, despite, you know, Mike downplaying it, Mike, uh, kept away from Dennis at, as far as he could, uh, for the rest of that show. And then Dennis was out of the group for most of the rest of the year. Uh, the band said, you know, that's too much. We cannot have you physically attacking people on stage, regardless of, you know, the, the bad feelings you have with Mike. Um, so that was the end of Dennis. I think he made a couple of appearances in in 79, uh, but for, like, after that, but for the most part, he was not back in the band, the live shows until 1980. So, um, do you have anything to add, Uh, Jeff, at Riley? Riley?
3: Uh, not Uh, much. So that was Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles. That was that show. It was, Mm uh, June 8th, 1979. And yeah, this is the show where Dennis and Mike had the, the fist fight on stage and, uh, it was pretty embarrassing, I was trying to look for some articles about it around the time. Uh, Unfortunately, there isn't really anything about it um, as far as in press. You would think that they'd jump all over that, but I think it was just such a brutal, uh, just like a random, brutal thing that everybody kind of wanted to bury. And uh, there's not a lot about it, a lot lot about it out there. But uh, yeah, they ended up um, suspending Dennis from the band until um, right around the Worth period in 1980 when they were in the uk
2: this was also around the time he started dating v too which i think was another thing because she was doing a lot of cocaine around this time too right 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 right, right. so it was like they were like just they were kind of uh what do you call it they were enabling each
3: other yeah they were kind of like drug uh like karen lamb and him were kind of the same thing like sharing drugs with one another and uh kind of they're intimate with one another at the same time yeah so it was kind of a dysfunctional Uh, relationship going on too and i think around this point too he was kind of hanging out with uh, fleetwood mac a lot at that that point and kind of going to their shows and he was involved um i forget which what song it was there was some video shoot that he was at um for one of their songs on i think it was on the tusk album Mm
4: -hmm.
3: maybe it was the, the tusk song the video for it he was at that shoot so like he was like following her around all over the place and that was kind of his thing going on at that point because he didn't really have the band. So, um, And plus he had stopped working on his solo uh, material by this point because he was just so deep into his addictions. And um, yeah, he was just so focused on that.
0: And that's why he stopped. That- the band releasing stuff like um like baby blue on la like that's stuff that could have made a dennis solo album but like you yeah. know it, it like with the way dennis was at that time that solo album was not coming out anytime soon so like i think the band was like well you know let's just use what we have and that's that's what they ended up doing
3: well yeah, even except well, 77 um at the by the end of 77 uh newspaper reports were coming out that uh, the Beach Boys are going to be using some of Dennis Wilson's uh, his solo material for the next album. So that was already coming out in '77 that that was mm. that they were going to use some of his solo material. So um, I think that it had started a lot earlier than we thought, than we really think. Um, I think it was like the end of '77, '78 was really when he really started to go downhill mm-hmm. and to kind of like uh, abandon bamboo and um, just focus on other things in life other than creating music, which is unfortunate because he was really great at it.
2: When was Brother Studios sold? Because I think a lot of people say that was a big one for Dennis once that was sold.
3: So that was sold um, at the, uh, I think it was the end of 77, early 78 to Tom Scott, who was uh, he was a uh, L.A. sax player. He was a session guy. He played on um, uh, Listen to What the Man Said, uh, the Wings song. Oh yeah, he's the one right. who plays the alto sax solo on there, and he was uh, he was a big LA session guy at that point.
0: In terms of the setlist around this time, uh, there's some interesting songs they were doing, even though they were totally in like the nostalgia period at this point. Uh, they were doing Roller Skating Child Live, uh, which really rocks, by the way. If you look it up, just type in like Beach Boys Roller Skating Child Live '79, like it freaking rocks. And like I wish the tempo was faster on the album because like it really does sound good. Uh, you can it's funny though because like you can hear the crowd react to it like. Okay, like, that was interesting, you know, like, the crowd doesn't know what to think, because they're expecting, you know, like, Sloop John B, or Wouldn't It Be Nice, or, you know, I Get Around, and instead they're doing Roller Skating Child. Yeah. Um, also, they were doing a live short Bread around this time, which is also really, like, good, like, it actually works pretty well, considering, you know, it's just like this children's, you know, song, whatever, but, like, it works really well live, and it rips, and, you know, it sounds good, so... Um, one thing I want to mention that we haven't really touched on in terms of the live shows at this point. So from around like, honestly, I would say 76, but really like 77, 78, 79, like the reviews were very mixed of, of the live shows around the time. Like, yeah. They, some nights it sounds like they were all right and people were like people were willing to kind of look past a few mistakes because like, you know, they're playing all these old hits that everyone loves, so people can kind of ignore the mistakes. But other nights, like, they were getting ripped by like in like reviews and stuff where like they were saying like the harmonies were out of key and it just didn't it just didn't sound good. It sounded like the band was under-rehearsed and that kind of stuff would play a role in Carl leaving later in the early 80s, which we'll get to in a little bit here um but uh the band i think in terms of like rehearsing and stuff i don't know how often that was happening it was kind of just like you know we go up on stage we do our we do our performance and you know that's it like so um in terms of the live shows i don't think this was like necessarily a great period but there definitely are some good recordings from this time it's not like they were like terrible uh just they were very iffy i would say hit or miss
3: yeah uh, they weren't extremely terrible by this point they were still holding on (laughs) um 79 i don't have much to say about it though because dennis wasn't there i I find when dennis isn't there that it my my kind of interest kind of goes downhill a little bit Mm -hmm. but um yeah you're right like they they still sounded relatively good Mm -hmm. yeah
0: yeah um since you like riley you do love la do you have any thoughts on this period of the band like live and stuff
1: I don't know. I haven't really listened to a lot of the live material from this exact period, besides those Australia shows a couple of years ago. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I, I really have to look into it. I mean, for me at least in the live band, my interest kind of wanes after Ricky and Blondie leave. Because I mean, there's not. That's fair. There's not a lot of like official material. The once we get into Nebworth, though, that's where I kind of pick back up because I I do love the Nebworth show a lot. Um, yeah. I think that's one of their best that I've listened to. I mean, I've listened to a lot of bootlegs from, like, 74, 75, uh, a little bit from 76. Um, but, I like, none of them I feel like really reach Nebworth, except for the Ricky and Blondie era. But yeah. Kind of bias. I do like a lot of the studio material around this time, though. I do like some of the stuff off MIU. And everybody knows about my feelings about L.A. I love L.A. So. Yeah. Uh,
0: since we're talking about it, I do want to take a chance just to like say something. So earlier, like in one of the earlier episodes, we were doing the album ranking. I was, I re-listened to LA recently and one of the earlier episodes we did actually a couple of them, I think I was ripping on going South. I was like, the song's boring. I re-listened to it. I kind of like it now. Like, I don't know. I think I, I think the first time I heard it, I didn't care for it. But now that I re-listened to it, I was like, it's not that bad. Like, it's kind of just the, it's not like interesting, but like, it's just like a nice little pleasant yacht rock song. Um, it's got a nice little solo in the middle of it, um, so it, it's not bad. So I, can, I feel kind of bad for trashing it, but I mean, you know, yeah, L.A. for me is a is a pretty respectable effort. Like it's not like a top tier album or anything, but I think people are way too hard on it. I don't think it's near as bad as like some people make it out to be. It's got some nice moments, you know, good timing and Lady Linda full sail. Uh, even like Sumahama, like that's a guilty pleasure for me. It's got a good melody uh you know mike love speaking in japanese isn't something i necessarily needed to hear but like it's not it's not the worst song so yeah so i guess that's i guess we'll move on to 1980 then if we're all good for 79 um okay so 1980 to me for me personally this is kind of the period where they really become like an oldies act Where like now we're really starting to transition to just not even doing like much new material like on like the recent albums um carl was not happy with this period uh, there's a quote from Carl around this time saying he felt like there was no energy or, or excitement on stage. Uh, so I think he was kind of getting bored with, with the current like touring act, which I understand it's like, you're just doing the same songs over and over again with no variety. Uh, the band wasn't really rehearsing much. Uh, so I totally understand that. Um, I will say it does seem like there was a, a period, a short period for like, I don't know if it was half a year or a few months, but for a short while in the summer, they were sounding really good. Uh, and this is when the Nebworth uh, Festival was recorded uh, in June 1980, which so this was um, the last time that all the original members played together in Europe, which is something that I think at the time, you know, nobody knew that that was going to be it. But looking back, that's and that's what ended up happening, because obviously Dennis passed a few years later. Um, but uh, it's a really cool show. I like it a lot. Riley, you said you like it. Um, I think it's a really high energy show. Uh, you hear Dennis like really like pounding those drums. Like this is, I think I said in one of the other episodes, he became a really like heavy hitter on the drums, like later, like later in his life. Um, and he really drives these songs along really well. Um, songs like, uh, Barbara Ann, which is a song I don't even care for the studio recording, like this live version, it rips, like, it's really cool. I like fun, fun, fun on here. It almost sounds like it's like, uh, they're doing it like Van Halen style. Yeah. Like ripping guitar. Stuff, but it works like it sounds really cool um i know there was some post editing work done with this album from what i've read i think the band said they weren't necessarily satisfied with the performances i think mike has some like auto-tune on him on some of the recordings and it's a bit noticeable um but like overall i do like this album i think it's kind of like their last like hurrah in terms of like live albums like i do listen to this one i've actually like worked out to this album because it's actually like really good to exercise to. it's very up-tempo um, and I like it a lot. So, uh, also one other thing I want to mention before I hand it over to you guys, uh, July 4th, they did the Washington DC show, uh, which is like a tradition that they would, they would do throughout the eighties. Um, over 500,000 people attended, which is like re- insane. Like the oh, half a million people went to see this band. Uh, it was the largest crowd for them ever. And, uh, I think there's footage from the show and it's, it's, they sound pretty good. Um, you know, they're, they're, Still, again, they're kind of in that nostalgic period. You know, they're not doing too much new stuff. Uh, they did some stuff from, like, Keeping the Summer Alive, but those songs didn't stay in the set, set list very long. Um, but, but yeah, overall, I think uh, this period definitely, like, 1980s definitely the year for me They really transitioned to more of an oldies act. But uh, I think there's definitely, like, some good recordings from this time, specifically Nedworth, so.
2: The DC show is really rock, especially Dennis. I think it's Darlin' is the really good one from that yeah. show. Pounds the freaking drums. Also, really quick <laughs> thing about that. I think they actually spliced a bit of that into an episode of TJ Hooker that Carl appeared in, and Carl actually was wearing the same shirt. And what's really funny is in HD, you can definitely tell the difference between that Car- TJ Hooker was on film and this was obviously videotape because it's so apparent, the difference in the quality. I'm sure back in the day when you were watching it on TV, it wasn't as noticeable, but now with HD, it's like, wow, this is noticeable.
3: it's a different hairstyle too, kind of.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just The difference in the video quality Because videotape is so much softer looking than film Film is so much sharper yeah. and more grainy
3: Yeah So I should say also about this uh, The Washington show um, This show was broadcast live as well On uh, FM radio at the time But it wasn't uh, broadcast Over TV live So it was actually filmed and edited And overdubbed um, They overdubbed it And then it was broadcast in October 1980 so that was kind of a weird. Uh, why would they broadcast that live? Like it was like such a huge event at the time, and it's like a July Fourth thing. So why October 1980? That's kind of weird, but just thought I should mention that.
0: Um. All right. I guess we'll move on to 1981. One other thing I wanted to say real quick. Uh, like Keeping the Summer Alive, like the songs on there, like Keeping the Summer Alive is an album where like I think the production kind of holds it back a bit. I don't think it sounds very, I mentioned this, it sounds very like plasticky to my ears. Like it just doesn't even sound real. Like it just sounds like very artificial. Um, but like songs like Keeping the Summer Alive, definitely better live, which you could say for some other Beach Boys songs for sure. Um, All right, we'll move on to 81 then. So 1981, the big thing for 81 is that Carl leaves the band. Uh, which was a huge thing because Carl was like, you know, to a lot of people, Carl is like the heart of the band, especially the live act. And Carl ends up leaving in April to pursue a solo career. Uh, According to, according to what people have said, according to what Carl said, he was getting annoyed with the oldies only shows. Carl wanted to do more new material. The band didn't seem to care Um, and the group wasn't rehearsing. And Carl felt like, you know, we I think there's some quote from him where he said, we could go up there and put on a real Turkey of a set and people will come back and say, that's the greatest show I've ever seen. And Carl was like, well, that's that's ridiculous. You know, it's like we should be giving the people what they deserve to see. You know, we should be rehearsing. We should be putting on the best show we can. And the group at this point was kind of just like treading water. They were like, let you know, why why put in the effort when like people will show up and be happy anyway. So, um, Carl, yeah, he said, Carl said, I'd like to see a variety of the later, more artistic stuff. And he said changing the arrangements around will be very helpful as well. So, uh, that, that didn't happen. So Carl ends up leaving. Um, also Dennis around this time was, uh, having more issues with fighting, uh, people like getting into brawls. Um, but he had gotten to like more issues with Mike, I think, and some other members. Uh, also there's a recording, um, of them performing at the Queen Mary in Long Beach, uh, from 1981 and Carl is absent and it is a painful performance to watch. Um, it's really rough you have the other members trying to cover Brian's parts. You have, I mean, yeah, um, Carl's parts, I mean. Uh, like, for example, on uh, God Only Knows, they have, I, th- I think Brian, is Brian saying God Only Knows in that Queen Mary performance? I think, I think one so, of them.
3: yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's pretty rough. And Don't Worry Baby is, like, the notable. Oh, it's, oh really, it's really bad. Rough. Yeah. And Carl commented, Carl said something like he was watching and he said that, like, it was painful and i totally get that cuz like and brian by the way seemed miserable he seemed like he didn't want to be there so um definitely a rough period without carl i mean to me if there's any proof you need that like carl was like the biggest part of this live band just take a look at that performance i mean it's a mess
3: they should not have broadcast that performance live that's <laughs> one that they should not have broadcast live it was really bad um plus they had a, a couple new uh backing members in their band too i should mention um ernie knapp was the bass player by this point um and uh adrian baker uh kind of made his entry into the beach boy world uh with this tour uh he was friends with mike love at the at this point but uh not really a great band at that point um but i should mention this july 4th show at uh, washington dc this show was broadcast on radio and it's actually not a bad show the day before. Um, but the July 5th show at the Queen Mary, that is a really bad show. Um, and also Rick Springfield, Three Dog Night, and Pablo Cruz played that show as well, too. So it was quite a large um, gathering.
2: Also, I want to talk about Sun City. They played Sun City. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's at the end of the year. Was um, So that was a resort in South Africa. It is a resort in South Africa. Now, this was during the heart of apartheid. So there was a big movement at the time that, like, do not go there. We need to stand up against apartheid. Well, the Beach Boys went, of course, which was very (laughs) shameful. I think it's one of the most shameful things that they ever did in their career, playing that damn Sun City. And then Mike Love doubled down defended by saying, well, we weren't popular anyway. They never liked us anyway, and the money was good. So that shows you all you need to know about Mike Love's stance on certain things. I I just think that was very shameful that they should have never gone to play that. Absolutely, that was a complete and utter disaster.
3: The thing about the Sun City show, too, is that this was the band's 20th anniversary, uh, December 1981, and they weren't even in L.A. So, like, that was kind of a snub to L.A., like, 20 years and, like, you're not even going to be there kind of thing. So, that was so. a middle
2: finger to the whole, I, in my opinion, that was a middle finger to the whole like, rock and roll in general because rock and roll was started by black people. And you're, like, playing in a country that they were treated like second-class citizens. It was a giant middle exactly. finger to the whole genre as far as I'm concerned. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things, too, where, like, hearing that quote from Mike, like, like, it's one of those things where, like, knowing, like, Mike's prominence in the band, like, obviously, like, you know, Mike's a huge part of their sound, he had a lot of their, there's a lot of their lead vocals and stuff, if, like, he had said he didn't want to go because he felt like it was, you know, morally wrong, I'm sure the band wouldn't have gone, like, I'm not excusing the others for, like, going along with it, but, like, in the end, like, you know, I mean, Mike, if Mike said he wasn't going, they probably wouldn't have gone, just because they couldn't have probably done no. it without and, yeah, Mike obviously didn't care and just cared about the money. And, you know, unfortunately, that's what happened. So, yeah, it's definitely one of the more shameful things in the Beach Boys history. I have learned about it pretty recently, probably within the past year or so. Um, but, yeah, pretty shameful. Um, There's right.
3: pictures of them from this point, too, like in their uh, South Africa trip. Or uh, Yeah, and it just really – they don't look good. They, uh, they look really tired and worn out by this point, the mm-hmm. band yeah uh maybe i'll we could put some of those up on screen but um uh, yeah yeah it's it was just really a really really bad decision to make
0: uh all right so we'll move on to 82 and for the next two years we'll do these next two years and then from that point on we're going to kind of move a little quicker until we get to the reunion tour but let's start with 82 here so uh carl ends up returning to the band In May, uh, thankfully, um, as does a few other of the backing musicians who had gone. Ed Carter returns also Mike Kowalski returns. Uh, Adrian Baker, like you mentioned, is in the band at this point. Um, The group started sounding better around this time. From what I've read, Uh, I haven't heard too much, but from what I've read, they they sounded better. Uh, The set lists were shorter. Which is something that they were doing to make Carl happy. It was kind of like, let's rehearse more, let's focus more on, like, you know, just delivering a good show. So they cut down the set list a bit, made it shorter. I think it was like an hour or something they said, and they would only do one encore. Um, This is when the group started doing something that's a little controversial, like the medleys where they would basically to crank out as many songs as they could they would throw them all together so they would do like a surf medley where they would do like all the surfing songs and then they would do a car medley where they would throw all the car songs together and then they have like a girls medley where they do the same thing and um it's one of those things where like i i understand why they were doing it like they wanted to have so many hits and the only way you're gonna like you know play a bunch of them is to do that but like at the same time you're kind of like screwing them up because you're shortening them and you're only playing like a fragment. So it's kind of, I, I don't know how I feel about it. Um, but that's something that they started around this time. Uh, Brian and Dennis were not involved in the summer tour, uh, during this time, the beach boys were touring during the summer and Brian and Dennis were not with them. Uh, this was a low point for Brian. Uh, he was starting to really struggle again. This was shortly before Landy came on again for the second time. Uh, because Brian, I think his weight was like really like he was like 300 pounds or something. So Brian was doing really bad. Um, there's a not so great quote from Mike. Uh, so they asked Mike about where Dennis was. And Mike was like, Dennis is currently drunk. He's battling alcoholism. Like, OK, Mike, like Jesus, like, Dennis is currently drunk. I mean, he's not wrong, but like you could I don't know, you could be a little more like less blunt about it. Um, yeah. anyway, anyway, so Brian does return in August of that year but he's 310 pounds which is like jesus you know like the man's gonna die if they don't do anything and sure enough they did in november 5th brian was fired from the beach boys which is a crazy statement um considering a lot of people view brian as the beach boys like the beach boys exist because of brian but uh the band was doing it to to help him um they told him he had to re-enter treatment with dr landy or he wasn't going to get i believe they were going to not pay him right from what i read Yeah. And yeah, that, so they basically told him you have to you have to get treatment. And he did end up doing that. Um, for better or for worse. You know, obviously I would say Landy did save Brian's life, but he also messed it up in some ways. So um he definitely uh, again, uh the band sounded better this year in eighty two than they did previously, with Carl being back and they were starting to rehearse again, but again, still totally in the oldies period. So uh do you have anything to add, guys? Foskett. Didn't Jeffrey Jeff Foskett come in around this time?
2: I yes. think you're I, yeah yeah, and uh, obviously, you know, he ended up being a staple not only of the Beach Boys touring band, but also Brian's band. And uh, rest in peace. I know he just recently passed away. Rest in peace. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. I think I think he pretty much said everything. I know Dennis by this point in time was
0: like. Oh no, yeah, Dennis, Dennis was starting to, yeah, like appear even less frequently. Like they would have. Uh, who was the drummer? Was it Kowalski at this point, or Figueroa? They had.
3: They had both. They had both.
0: Oh, okay. They had both. Yeah. And if you watch shows from this time, like there's always somebody else with Dennis drumming, almost like they knew, like we better have like a backup, you know, just in case Dennis is like either doesn't show up or he's in no shape to drum, which certain times he was. So, um, all right, so we'll go on to '83 here. Uh, I just wanted to mention
3: one show in 1982 because this is kind of like this year is kind of boring for me, but there was one thing that kind of sparked my interest when I was looking through the itinerary here. Um, there's a show at J.W. Little Stadium in London, Ontario, Canada. Um it's with Del Shannon. They do his runaway song uh which was popular around this time. They do this in concert. And also uh John Mellencamp was one of the openers and uh they told Mellencamp that he was only allowed to play for 30 minutes and he got all upset after this and he ended up uh throwing the drum the drum set for the Beach Boys off stage along with all their monitors and kind of threw like a tantrum in front of all the fans, but I just thought that was kind of funny.
0: I saw that in the book. I was laughing at that. I was like, yeah. that's that's interesting. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, so I guess we'll move on to 83 then. Uh, so this is obviously uh, a pretty sad year for the Beach Boys because Dennis passes away at the end of the year. But before we get to that, um, so the band had a they were kind of put back. Obviously, people knew about them at this point. They were still touring selling tickets, but um, they'd kind of been out of the spotlight for a little bit. And then they were put back into the spotlight when this controversial controversial thing happened at the uh, – so they normally would do the July 4th Washington, D.C. show. And in 1983, what happened was uh, they were banned from doing it uh, by the U.S. Secretary of the Interior, which was James Watt at the time. Uh, he called them hard rock, which is an interesting <laughs> statement. It's like, have you ever heard the Beach Boys? Um, and he said, uh, he basically said like, they weren't going to bring the right crowd. And he basically viewed it like, he was like almost describing them. Like they were like black Sabbath or like, you know, or like the grateful dead. And they were going to bring in a bunch of drugs and stuff. Um, and, uh, so then Ronald Reagan, who was a big beach Boys fan, as was his wife. Uh, he defended them. And uh, this put the band back into the spotlight. It was like a big story. The Beach Boys were doing interviews about it, you know, and saying, like, how, like, you know, we don't mean any, you know, we're just we're like America's band. And we just want to make people happy and put on a good show. And uh, so they definitely were back into the spotlight at this point. Uh, James y., I think, apologized to them and kind of said, like, you know, I messed up. I goofed on that. Um, and Reagan was giving him a hard time, too, about that. Um, and then I guess the only other thing I want to mention before that, talking about Dennis is, um, there's a full show from this period on YouTube. Uh, it's the kingdom show it's in Seattle. It's from May mm-hmm. of that year. Um, I think this was another one of those like video feed recordings where like they were showing that up on the screen somewhere. Um, and it's an interesting show. Um, you can see like some of the medleys they were doing and how they would do it. Um, they would really rush through a lot of the songs. And I think that's kind of because Dennis was like drumming really fast like it seems like dennis is kind of out of control on this show like he's uh he's like and also he doesn't look great either um you can kind of see like visibly like dennis is starting to kind of degrade like he just wasn't looking great you could tell something was definitely up um you mentioned you mentioned runaway brian uh sings runaway during this show and he's dancing very awkwardly (laughs) during it but it's pretty funny um And, uh, it's, it's an interesting show. I wouldn't say it's like the band at their peak by any means. It's definitely, there's definitely some moments. Um, also, I don't know why Mike Love was singing Imagine, but that didn't need to happen. Um, it's not like, I just like, I understand like, yeah, like, you know, Lennon had passed a few years before they were trying to do like a tribute, but like, I don't know, it just comes off as very like corny to me. I don't know.
3: Um, He was very nasal by this point. Very nasal.
0: Yeah. So that's the, that's the other thing. Yeah. I forgot to mention. Yeah. Mike at this point, really nasally to the point where like, yeah it's almost like too much and you hear that i'm like a couple years later i'm like get you back he's in like full nasal mode and it's just like my god um but uh yeah so moving on to dennis though so dennis makes his last appearance with the band in september of 83 and there's a recording from around that time of him on stage and he can barely even talk it's really sad um he's like trying he's like trying to thank the audience and stuff and then he like sings like a line of you are so beautiful but like he can barely even sing his voice is just gone. And, um, uh, you know, if you're listening to this show, you probably know the story with, with Dennis' uh, death and how he passed. Um, it's really, really sad. He passed in December. And then shortly after that, the band issued a press conference where they talked about, you know, what had happened and what they were going to do going forward. But um, that's about it for 83 for me. Do you guys have anything to add? I just want to add one quick thing.
2: So um, this is from a piece that The Guardian, the UK newspaper, wrote in 2003. So around the 20th anniversary of Dennis' death, and I think this is really poignant, and I always, I want to share it on the podcast. So at the very end of the article, they're talking about like you know the Beach Boys reverting to the clean-cut characters of 1964. Dennis went off the rails, and then they said within a few years, he would be excised from the band's history. It was as though Pacific Ocean Blue had never even existed. Once again, he would be their no-talent drummer, the Lothario who served. The Beach Boys continued without Dennis. They were on their way to Kokomo and lucrative duets with the Fat Boys. For that journey, they had no need of their soul which i think honestly sums it up because i really think that once dennis died the band was just wasn't the same at least i think so i know some people may disagree well yeah,
0: the studio. At yeah least no, the, I mean- the
2: studio and everything yeah
0: yeah i mean yeah. i read i read a quote where where it basically said like everyone knew the band was going to go on because like Dennis, like to them hadn't even been that much of a member the past year or so, because, you know, he had been away for so long, uh, having his own substance abuse issues and um, checking in and out of like rehab centers and stuff. So like, he just wasn't really involved at that point. So I think everyone kind of knew they were going to go on, but like, again, it just, I don't know. Like, yeah, it does seem a little bit insensitive. Like, I think they, I think they only took like a couple months off, I think. And they were already back touring by like the spring of 84. Um, I think I wrote, uh, one quote from the book for this year for 83 that I forgot to mention um so at a show in September of 83 this was in Pennsylvania um it says so these shows took place on Al's birthday and Bruce dedicated Disney girls to him uh prior to playing it he commented I think it's really great a guy can be in a band 21 years and grow up not being a drug addict and rock and roll or an alcoholic <laughs> and then Mike replied we can't all be Wilsons can we And then it said something like Carl was not uh, we never got a comment from Carl on how he felt about that statement. But, um, you know, Mike is always going on about the Wilson brothers that tainted Wilson blood, whatever that one quote was from him.
3: (laughs) So this year in 1983, they ended up doing the 4th of July at Caesars Boardwalk, which is kind Mm -hmm. of like a beach location in uh, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Uh, They show a clip from this in the American Band documentary towards the end. Where they're playing Bar Barbrand and uh, Dennis is just pounding away on the drums and um, although he looks like really bad in this in this clip he's still like playing right to the very very end and um, it just makes you feel like really sad about his passing like knowing about it afterwards. So this show uh, specifically because it was a beach show and like there are people there all day kind of waiting for the band to play. There was a few different things that happened. There was a guy that suffered a heart attack at this show. Um, and then there was a person that had uh, a la- laceration on the forehead and a skull abrasion. Uh, 300 people were treated at two medical trailers on on site. So there was quite a few things going on at this show. And there was like a few different fights, but nobody was arrested. Um, but yeah, um, it ended up being like their last kind of 4th of July altogether. And, um, I believe this show was also recorded too. I don't, it was never broadcast, but it was, uh, it was recorded. It's somewhere in the the band's archives. Mm. Um, I should also mention another show from 83, um, which was Dennis's last uh, concert. This was uh, LA County Fairgrounds, uh, Pomona, California on September 26. He played the most, if not the entire show. And then he showed up the next day and caused such a commotion with the band that he was banned from playing with the band again until he cleaned up his act. So by the time Dennis died, he wasn't even in the band. He was still mm-hmm. out of the band again. As as he had been in nineteen seventy nine. So I think this was part of uh why he ended up dying. Um, because he was kind of looking for something um searching for something in his life to kind of like uh to grasp onto and When he went, when he went into the water, um, he was actually going for stuff he had thrown overboard uh, of Karen Lamb's many, many years earlier. And he found like this old picture of him and Karen Lamb together. And like there's a bunch of different other like items he was like kept diving down and going and bringing them back up and diving down and bringing them back up. And then one time he just dove down and he never came back up. That was it. That was the end.
2: Yeah. Told his. This is probably just Dennis like saying stuff, but I think he told his oldest son he had cancer at the time. I don't know about that. I think that was just Dennis being Dennis. But um, and which just want to say one thing that you said, Jake, was like you said it was kind of insensitive going without Dennis. See, the thing is, is like it's one thing, you know, firing Dennis and going on. That's fine. The Rolling Stones did that with Brian Jones, and they made some of their finest records afterwards. The problem (laughs) was that when you fired Dennis, I think that Dennis, even yes, I know he was going through stuff with, you know, with cocaine and everything and alcohol. But like before, he was like one of the last vestiges of them, like trying to do progressive stuff you fired him and it was like you guys just turned into the oldies that i guess you always wanted to be that was the difference because the stones fired brian jones and they made some of their best albums some people would
0: argue they made better albums without brian jones
4: Mhm.
0: yeah i mean i know i said it was insensitive i mean i guess in a way though like like we kind of said though like um you know dennis hadn't been really involved with the band much the past year or two and i mean i guess like uh it it, it you know, I, it, would, it would have made that much of a difference had they waited a few longer months. You know, honestly, it was probably better for the band mentally to maybe just get back to do, playing because, like, you know, you think, like, if you're not playing, what are they doing? You know, probably just, like, you know, what their families are sitting at home, you know, but, like, it probably was almost like a distraction in a way. I know, like, his death really affected Brian. Um, I'm sure it affected Carl a lot, too, but, like, you could see Brian yeah. during the press conference how, like, hurt he was about it. It's really hard to watch, honestly. Um but yeah, so yeah, that was obviously a tough year for them. Tough way to end the year for them. Uh, so I don't have too much to say for the live band from like '84 up to like '89, 1990. Um, do you have anything to say, Justin, or any of you guys? Any concerts? Just a
2: couple quick ones. Um, obviously there was that one where they played with Jimmy Page and Ringo. Was that '84? '84, I, I believe.
3: Yeah. 84.
2: Yeah. Uh, live yeah. eight of course, was a big one that they did. Um, in '85. And then the only other one is uh, this is when Stamos starts coming to the picture and starts drumming for them on occasion. So we all love John Stamos, right? <laughs> That's all I have to say about this era, because I, I kind of, like, I'm like the rest of you. I kind of lose interest after here.
3: And Mr. the cheerleaders, Dennis died, yeah.
2: cheerleaders start coming in soon, right?
3: The cheerleaders came in at the early 90s, yeah. 19 I'd say 1990, think,
0: 91. Yeah, right? I wrote I wrote on my list. I don't know if it's accurate, but I wrote, like, 1990-ish for the cheerleaders. Yeah what i've read we've talked about this before but like it it was kind of like a mic idea like from what i've read al wasn't big on it carl said he thought it was the most ridiculous thing you'd ever heard but then he just kind of went with it at this point carl like by like the late 80s carl was kind of just accepting like the situation like okay you know like people want to hear the old hits you know like we're not gonna like at this point we're not gonna like do anything like super progressive you know so um which i understand you know it, it had been such an exhausting battle trying to like you know keep the band moving in a progressive direction the fans a lot of the fans didn't want it you know after the endless summer thing it became even more hard to do so i i get it i don't really blame carl for like giving in to that um also in 1989 they had a reunion tour with chicago uh, which is kind of cool. There's I've seen some footage from that. Also, one quick thing I want to mention, I know we're going back quite a bit here, but uh, if anyone wants to see some cool footage of the band around that mid-70s period, uh, Billy Hinchey made a little mini documentary called On the Road with the Beach Boys. Uh, and it's from 1974. And it's really interesting because it's like home video footage that Billy Hinchey shot on like this camera that he had. And you get to see like uh, some funny interactions with Dennis and Mike. There's that famous, that if, you, if people in the community have probably seen it, the video of like Mike eating the banana and, and Dennis like asking him his thoughts on like Jim Garcia and then like some of the Beach Boys. Oh, no, Van Dyke Parks. Van Dyke. Then, yeah, Van Dyke asks, he's like, tell me what you think of Van Dyke. And Mike's like, what do I think of him? He's like, yeah, tell me what you think. Do you think he's a, you know, and then Mike's like, I hope you're getting your rocks off. So it, it's really funny. <laughs> um and then there's also like footage of them like just like doing like regular like touring stuff like checking into hotels and getting on planes and stuff so like you kind of see like that like it's like a that weird period where like they were starting to get like more popular again but like not quite like they weren't quite to like that super high popularity they'd get to so you kind of get to see the band you know what it was like touring with them which is interesting um they had one plane right one plane right yeah at this point um all right, so I guess going back to, like, the 90s, though, so, uh, so like, 1992, like, to just refresh on, like, what the backing band was looking like at this point. So you had Adrian Baker in the band in 92, uh, Ed Carter, uh, Billy Hinchy, Mike Kowalski, and Al Jardine's son, Matt Jardine, uh, was in the yep. band around this time. Um, so that was the backing band around that period. Uh, 93 for me is a notable year because this is the year that um, the Good Vibrations box set came out. And what was notable about that was that the band started doing some rare songs during the set lists for certain shows, not all the shows that year, but like in like the fall specifically, I think they were doing some, some deeper cuts just to like promote the album, the, I mean, the box set. So they did songs like Take a Load Off Your Feet. Um, they did Vegetables Live. Uh, they were doing some more Pet Sounds tracks, like Caroline No, and and I think You Still Believe in Me. Uh, All This Is That they did, which like if I was there, I would have been thrilled by that, Like you know, not knowing that they're going to do some deep cuts, and then they play that, yeah. I would have been like, oh my god. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, really cool that they were doing that. Um, d- what are your guys' thoughts on that? Have you guys heard any of those like recordings of them doing the discussion yeah. the- around that time?
3: I wish that I could have gone to one of those shows, because I was live at that point, and uh, I remember i think i told you guys in our chat that we have um that at that point when that box set came out i couldn't afford it because i was just a kid and my parents there's no way they're going to spend over a hundred dollars in one <laughs> go like that so i tried to kind of like gather all all the information i could about this box set and like all the different like shows they were performing and stuff like i'd go look through magazines and stuff and you'd kind of read oh they're performing this song at this show and oh they're bringing out this song and this and it's just like oh my god i wish they could come to toronto and like i could uh go see them but they never i don't think they came that year so i actually never got to see that unfortunately
0: yeah oh yeah i would have loved to have seen that obviously you know i was like years before i was born that was like nine or ten years before i was or yeah eight or nine years before i was born but yeah that would have been really cool to see um one show that I wrote from uh, November 21st of that year, uh, I didn't even know they had done these songs live like ever um, until I read this, but apparently they did. I don't think there's any recordings of it that exist, but it's mentioned in the uh, Beach Boys in Concert book, which is like a very well-researched book. So I do trust yeah. it. Uh, it yeah. said that in November 21st in Valley Forge, they played It's Over Now. The night was so young. Uh, I just wasn't made for these times, which I think they'd done before. And you still believe in me uh so i thought it was really interesting like i would love to have heard like it's over it's now over especially now. Night night yeah. was young live like that would have been like so cool to hear yeah
3: i i often wonder what carl's thoughts were about that adult child uh material all those years later because i'm sure he heard it again when they put it back on the box set i think there's a couple tracks from that that period um yeah. and that was kind of a low point for him in his life so i was it's kind of curious like what exactly he thought about that but there's not really any information about that out there about that
0: yeah i mean all i've heard is like it's for me it seemed like the wilson's tended to support that album like it's i know dennis had said some positive things about it at the time like i think he said something like yeah it's weird but like it's brian like doing some of his i think he said something like yeah brian's doing some great material again i think he said something like it's better than some of the stuff we just released um and then obviously carl was cool with some of the songs he's singing on quite a bit like he's singing yeah. on it's over now and um what's the other one of course life is for the living so yeah, uh, yeah. i think the wilson's Not, are generally supportive of it i although i mean like
3: how i mean like how did he feel about it in
0: 1993
3: oh yeah your thoughts change thoughts over the years about years. like especially on work that you've done right so well i'm just curious like well, how he thought about that like cuz it was a, a weird period in his life too yeah well, he, he must have looked
2: sorry i said he was okay with it being released because didn't he veto soulful old man sunshine that's why it wasn't on that box
0: set sunshine yeah yeah Yeah, he he did yeah that's why i vetoed (laughs) it.
2: brian vetoed let him run wild because he hated the vocal on it so i'm saying it seems like carl was at least okay with it being released to the public because he could have vetoed it if he really hated it that much right
3: right yeah i'm just curious Um, because it's a really it was a really weird period for him right
0: so right right um all right uh so i moving on now i I don't have anything really for 94 95 i don't know if you have anything justin um 96 uh september of 1996 brian plays at navy pier in chicago with the beach boys which isn't far from where i live um and that was where his last concerts with the beach boys until the reunion tour interesting um and then 1997 sadly carl was diagnosed with cancer uh david Marks returns which is interesting david marx is back in the band for the first time in many many years um and carl's last shows were with the band were in august uh at that point he was i think he was sitting down for a lot of the concerts um, um and, like singing like a duel uh and but but he was still he still sounded really good though like if you listen yeah. to recordings of him doing like there's a recording of him doing i can hear music and, and god only knows and like still sounds just at the top of his game and like knowing still has
3: like, that powerful voice
0: right it's, it's it's really, really moving really, it's really moving yeah hearing how how good he sounds still even at that point um yeah. i
2: think he stood for the whole show so i think he i mean he sat for the whole show i think they said he stood for god only knows okay and i was okay. reading anecdotes of people that were there and they kind of knew that you know the end was near for carl um sadly yeah. i know he died in early 98 and then um basically when he died the band kind of fractured big mm-hmm. time um i know al Al was fired by mike right
0: wasn't he fired by mike around that time from what I read, he – I, I kind of read he just left. He just left? But then – I, I, yeah, there were times, though, I think, where Mike wanted to – because, like, there was that one quote where, like, he was like, yeah, Al has, like, an attitude problem or something. And I Al forgot what yeah. –
3: That it to- was 92, yeah. 92? Al- okay, that was earlier. Okay,
0: okay. Al told yeah.
3: it
2: to the press that He said, oh, it's a circus, and it's, like, a, it's it's ridiculous. And, <laughs> and then – but it was true. He wasn't wrong. But I know that um, this was also – we're going into 98 and everything – this is when Mike, I think for a while, Mike had to tour under a different name right before he got the rights to use the Beach Boys name. Yeah. And yeah. then Al started touring, I know, with like the, f- it was like the family and friends beach of the Beach Boys, what he family. toured with for a bit, yeah. but then he had to stop using that name because Mike tried to sue him. So yeah. he started he kind of started touring by himself. And of course, Brian started touring with, you know, Darian and all those people around this time. So I think this is when we started seeing that it kind of was getting fractured up until we get to the reunion tour, obviously, in 2012.
3: Right all this stuff happened super fast too. Cause I remember um, when Carl died uh, the day Carl died, I was watching TV. I actually had just got a TV in my bedroom, which was kind of cool for me, like a 13, 14 year old kid to have a, a TV. And uh, I was kind of flipping through the channels. And then I saw Carl's face on the TV. I was like, Oh, I guess they're having a new album come out or something. And then they're like, he passed away. He died. Blah, 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 blah time. And I was like, oh, my God, I guess it's done. Band's over. Mm-hmm. I actually went down and told my parents after, because my dad was a big Beach Boys fan, too. And I said, Carl Wilson died. He's like, what? I'm like, Carl Wilson died. And he's like, I guess it's over then. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was really it was really bad. And then um, the year after that, I think it was 99, 2000, that's when you saw, like, the real fragmentation i was um, we had just gotten the internet too at that point and i was kind of following all like the message boards and the uh all the different websites at that at that point and uh, i remember when when al was touring as uh beach boys friends and family and then mike sued them and um it all happened so fast it happened within like a matter of like a couple months and stuff and then brian was touring all of a sudden and um it was just like a lot of stuff going on in the Beach Boy world at that point. And um, they, were, they were also doing the walks for, for Carl Wilson, walks for cancer at that point, which uh, brought out a lot of like the older uh, band members like Billy Hinchy and uh, Bobby Figueroa came and played at those events. And um, yeah, it was really cool to see that, to, to see uh, kind of like all of the older um Band members and friends and stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. I think some of the members of America came and played at those shows too. Of and, you too.
2: yeah, these came from one too. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So
3: I, uh,
0: I I don't know if this was during this period or not, or if this was a little earlier. But like I read like. um for a while it was it was weird because I, I think al said this in his interview the one that you sent uh matt um that i guess al's son matt was like still touring with mike's band while al was not in the yeah B-boy, which is really weird like that's just awkward
2: uh-huh. but matt has good falsetto so i can see why they kept yeah. him around. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah yeah but just i think there's it... oh yeah go ahead
3: i think he was also under contract too and it was something where he just had to make a living at that point like Mm-hmm. And, and just finish off his kind of his duties with with the band
2: uh, of course you don't want to get, get sued by mike he'll take your ass to court in a exactly
0: heartbeat.
3: exactly exactly
0: um all right so i don't really have too much from like that point on up to like the reunion tour uh do you guys have yeah. any any like uh concert experiences you want to share during that time if you saw them at that point or no because i was like really young so i, oh. I hadn't even <laughs> been to my
2: concert <laughs> at that point me too
3: I saw uh it's not really a concert. I saw Mike and Bruce their first appearance as Mike and Bruce on the Today Show. I think it was 1999 or 2000. And I remember uh setting my VCR uh, to to tape it and seeing it and just being so embarrassed. was <laughs> like, "Oh my God!" Like, yeah, because they looked so old and just like just the two of them on stage. It just didn't look right. And they had like a whole new band and. Yeah, it didn't look right.
0: Right. Yeah, like I, I always like again, like I don't, I used to kind of be skeptical of the Mike and Bruce like touring band. Now I'm okay with it. Like again, I saw them live and it totally like was a whole experience for me. And I was like, you know what, like I'm not gonna, they're they're fine, you know. But um, like I, to me, like when you refer to like the Beach Boys as like the Beach Boys versus the current Beach Boys touring band, like for me, like that, like the the Beach Boys referring to them as the touring band, like that's Mike and Bruce, you know, like yeah. once Carl passed, like that was the Beach Boys, you know,
3: that was it, yeah. Um,
0: even if Al, even if Al was still with like Mike and Bruce, I'd still almost kind of have a hard time just referring to that as like the actual Beach Boys. I just feel like you know you need a Wilson in there, um, yeah, and and Carl was such a he had such a huge role in the band, so, um. All right, so I guess, do we want to jump to the 2012 reunion then, if that's all we Let's have? Let's do back? it. All right. Um, so the 2012 reunion is really interesting uh, because the Beach Boys were doing, I know, Riley, you can elaborate on some of this stuff. I know you're, you're into this uh, period. Um, but the Beach Boys were doing these really long set lists, uh, which was really cool. They were doing uh, the hits. They were doing deep cuts. Um, and this was a big tour that um, had kind of been in the making. I think the Beach Boys had been getting together a little bit, I think, before this um like brian had like reconnected with them and stuff and uh yeah this this tour they went across the u.s and i think well, it, outside the u.s too right was it out, outside the u.s as well um yeah so they did a bunch of shows though uh cool set lists like i mentioned um And uh, it's really cool to see. They did that really nice tribute to uh, Carl and Dennis where they would put Carl up on the screen and he would sing God Only Knows while like the band, you know, would provide the backing. And then they did the same thing with Dennis singing Forever, which is like really moving. Um, I'll always regret that I didn't have the chance to see uh, one of those shows. I was still pretty young at the time. I would have been only like 11 um, so I wasn't like that into music at all at that point. So I just, it never was something that really interested me. Um, but I would have loved to have seen that, uh, just the amazing set list they were doing, uh, seeing all the, the, you know, their living members on stage. Uh, you had David Marks with them as well again, which is really cool. So, um, uh, d- didn't, uh, Justin, didn't you see this, this tour once you said you want to talk I did, about yeah, that? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So I saw them in Toronto, uh, when they came, and played at uh Budweiser stage it used to be called Molson Amphitheater but they called it Budweiser stage at that point mm-hmm. and it's right off of Lake Ontario so you can see the lake right from the venue and I remember the sun setting it was such a beautiful night and uh I was with my parents my parents were with me and um I remember texting the the girl I was going on with at the time and telling her how excited I was and I held up the phone and like and recorded some of the songs for her and sent them to her. And, um, yeah, it was just a great night and they played a lot of deep cuts. Like all this is that, um, I wish I still had those pictures and video, but, uh, like I, like I told you guys, I was on another computer that I didn't back up and, uh, it went haywire that computer. So unfortunately I don't have those pictures, but I still have the memories Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, it was just, it was a great show. And, uh, I I thought that the tributes to Dennis and Carl were very, very uh, tasteful. And um, it's a shame that neither one of them was there to uh, experience it. But uh, unfortunately, that's the way life is. Um, But yeah, I wish that they could have continued uh, touring together because I think that even with Brian in the mix, like that would have created more of a, uh, like actually the Beach Boys.
0: Right. It felt like legitimate like that was a little bit more yeah right right the fact that and then again it's amazing that that even happened because you know everything the band had gone through you know you had like lawsuits and and people suing each other with like mike and al you know and then obviously brian had some history with mike and stuff so the fact that like they were able to actually make that happen and again like they were all you know like up there in age even at that point you know they were all like in their 70s so the fact that they were able to come together again to make that happen and and do so many shows uh, with these long set lists and that only kept getting longer it seems like from what i've read they kept adding songs yeah. and stuff So it's really cool that 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 happened and uh, i'm glad that there's a lot of like videos of it online you can watch to kind of hearing able to, that kind of experience, experience to in person um what do we think of the uh the 2012 like the album that they put out with that like the, the reunion album not not that's why god made the radio but the live one oh the live isn't that
2: was that I actually never listened. To that is that the one that they put auto tune on, or no? Yeah, it's
0: on there. But <laughs> it is
2: on there. Okay, because yeah. I have the Blu Ray, and I I didn't know if like the the it might be like the similar thing. Yeah, because I think I remember reading there was a lot of auto tune on there.
3: So the auto tune uh, was actually at the shows too. Like when you went to see the show, oh really? They had auto auto tune on the vocals too. Yeah. I wonder whose idea like that was. It, it wasn't as apparent as it is like on the recordings, but like it was there. Um, but I must say though, um, Jeff Foskett really um push those shows along really well like he was like a main guy even my mom like mentioned like that guy can sing really well and she was talking about foskett she doesn't even know about music
2: if you watch the grammys performance because they performed at the grammys that year for the 50th anniversary and you could tell foskett is carrying a lot of those falsettos and the harmonies like um yeah, they brought, I know they went at the Grammys that year in twenty twelve for the 50th, and then I know they brought out Maroon Five and Foster the People. I could do without them. But it was nice to see like the whole band with like Foskett and all that. And yeah, yeah. Foskett yeah. is definitely very sorely
0: missed. Yeah. 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 What do you uh think of that album, Riley?
1: It was really good. I, I like I really I mean, I could kind of do without some of the autotune, but I mean, it doesn't bother me too much, but I think it's very I don't think it's like super apparent where it bothers you. Mm-hmm. Um I definitely like the focus on the members of the band compared to like a lot of some of the other stuff, live stuff. Like I mean a lot, of, like, especially now when you like think of the live band. I mean I'm more there to see Jeff Foskett kind of people, even though Jeff Foskett isn't with us anymore. But I really like the focus on the band. How I mean David Marks my guy. He's playing lead guitar. He's doing all the guitar solos, and he's finally gotten getting his time in the spotlight. Get this thing, get you back. I thought he did a pretty decent job. Yeah. I, I I like that a lot of the band members are getting the focus and they each kind of have their moment to shine. I mean, Al I think actually out of everybody's voice in the band has aged the best in terms of vocals. And I don't really think he needed the autotune as much as like somebody maybe like Brian or Mike. I mean, you listen to Help Me Rhonda. I didn't hear any attitude on that. I mean, I could be wrong, but. I I think he does a beautiful job singing Help Me Rhonda. I liked a lot of the deeper cuts on there. They did All This Is That. They did California from uh, the California Saga. I I love that they did a lot of those deep cuts. Add some music, yeah. uh, Yeah, they did a lot. They actually did a version of Still Cruisin' a couple of times, which is kind of funny that they're pulling out the song from from 89. I love that. I love a lot of the 80s material. Like I said, they did Get You Back, which I really liked. Um... I, I'm just glad that everybody kind of got their moment to shine. Uh, some of my favorite songs, um, I, I meant like I said, mentioned "Get You Back." I like, I really liked "Help Me," Rhonda. I liked uh, "California Saga." I'm really glad they did. Um, <coughs> all this is that though. I think they did a really good job with that. Um, I kind, I mean, I think it would have been pretty cool to, if they could, maybe got Ricky or Blondie to come up there with them. But I mean, I feel like that was kind of too far gone for them. I know Brian did some stuff later on with Blondie, but. Yep. Again, I'm, I'm glad that each member got their moment to shine. I'm glad they pulled out some deep cuts along with their big tracks. I think it was, it is one of the best reunion tours, definitely. I think it's yeah. pulled off so well. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of fan service.
2: I would say it's a good way to close the book in a way on the beach boys just because of all the acrimonious and all the fighting and all of this you know it could make a lifetime movie blush with all this crap that went on in this band but i really think that you know the way that that tour you know came together and the way how successful it was and everything i think it was a really good way to kind of you know close the book on the beach boys you know
1: yeah and i know we shit on john Stamos a lot but I, I guess there was a time where like the forever video cut out with dennis and John Stamos was already with him, so he came came out, went on piano, and played forever. I mean, that like I mentioned this a couple of times before, I'm, I'd rather he did that as his cover on Summer in Paradise than the bullshit we got instead. But even though we, we shit on Stamos, I think that was kind of sweet that he did that. Definitely a better tribute to Dennis than the other, the other one. <laughs>
0: I saw you mentioned uh, Riley in your um, like your episode notes that you wrote that they didn't do any songs from Friends, which is kind of interesting. I know I know the album didn't do yeah. well commercially, but like the fact that they were doing like still cruising at some shows, but they weren't doing a song from Friends. Like come on, like do something, like do like Wake the World or something. Let Al do a lead, you know, like I don't know, that would have been nice. But is he doing yeah. nothing? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah that'd be cool. Yeah, because Brian's I, done that song live solo
1: before, so yeah. I I I. I don't understand why they didn't do any friends songs. Maybe maybe because they're generally too short. Um, I mean, I really would have loved wake the world. And I guess too short isn't really an excuse because they did four oh nine, and that song's (laughs) a minute and a half. But there there is a noticeable lack of like deeper, sadder songs from Brian's catalog. There's not. There's no till I die. They didn't do surf's up. They didn't really do besides hero and villains and good vibrations. They didn't do anything from smile. And part of me wonders if maybe that would have caused Brian some, like, trauma or something. Because I know they had to really incorporate a lot of Brian's needs for him to join the band. Like, they had Darian with them. So I'm kind of curious if maybe that's kind of more the reason why they did do some a lot of those songs. Yeah, I mean,
0: I kind of view it like it would have been kind of, like, depressed because this is supposed to be like a very uplifting thing you know like the beach boys are back together so i feel like doing a song like till i die would have been kind of depressing and just awkward because everyone's there to have a good time you know like a lot of people there were probably like you know there probably were a lot of casual beach boys fans there you know so to like yeah do a song like that it would have been like a bit not to use mike's stupid quote but like it would have been a bit of a downer you know like it would have been like you haven't really fun night of songs and then till i die comes on you know or like a day in the life of a tree like imagine how awkward that would have been to be doing that show but um and i think with the smile tracks like i'm not too surprised that they didn't include them again i think they're kind of catering to like they knew there were a lot of casual fans there too and i think like songs like add some music are more accessible for like a casual listener who's never heard them before over something like cabin essence um yeah. so so i think that's how i would view that but like overall i think they did a really good job with the set list uh i think it, i would have liked to see something from love you that would have been cool to like the night was so young we're
1: skidding so- child. oh god that would have
0: been guys. funny it would carson.
1: have been funny oh, actually johnny carson johnny <laughs> carson would have ripped johnny <laughs> <Carson>. <laughs> i think it's <laughs> pretty accessible to the
0: upbeat one so- no, so many people in the crowd would have been like, "What the heck?" Like, if they started doing Johnny Carson, like, "What even is this?" Like, <laughs> <laughs>
3: let me well, tell you when like, they did. All, all this is that, and all that other stuff. I remember Mike said, "Like, we're gonna do some songs that were kind of like deeper, kind of cuts mm-hmm. from our '70s albums that don't really get their due." He had, he did like a whole speech before he, before they they went into those songs.
0: Yeah, that's cool. That's, yeah, yeah. I'm kind
1: of I surprised look- they didn't do a lot of stuff from Sunflower. They, they I think they only did add some music.
3: Add had some music, yeah. But
1: they did forever, too. That's did, sure. they not, they did.
0: did they not do This Whole World? I thought I saw no, that No.
1: No? They didn't. Okay. I scoured the, uh, the set, setless <laughs> FM. I was looking for, like, the biggest of deep cuts. That's how I found Still cruising. I think they did Still cruising like, maybe three, four times. They never did This Whole World. <clears throat> I mean, I would have liked to maybe say slip, on, slip on through or This Whole World, but, I mean, I understand why they didn't do Slip yeah. On Through. Yeah. But no, no, all I want to do. But I feel like that song didn't really become popular, at least in the fan base, until maybe after the tour when it started to become realized as an influence for Shoegaze.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like that song too. Wouldn't that song kind of
1: be hard to do on stage because like the production is <laughs> big? Oh, you what know,
2: makes that song?
0: So like Mike's band did it live a few years ago uh, when they were promoting the Feel Flows box set. Mike's band with with Bruce, they did it a few times at shows, and it, it's like. Yeah, I, that song really relies on the production. That ma- that's what makes it so, like, cool, so, like, magical. Um, without the production, it does kind of sound how Brian described it. It kind of sounds a little bland. Uh, but, like, with that production and, and, like, the beautiful harmonies and everything, it's, it, it really works. Um, but, you know, I understand why they why they didn't do that song. But it would have been cool anyway, you know, just to see, like, that kind of a deep cut being played. Um, yeah also one other thing before, uh, we, we can talk a little bit about, um, Mike and Bruce's current band if we want to, and also share some of our own concert experiences. But, uh, one thing I also wanted to mention too, like in referring to like, you know, like the songs that they selected, like I saw, I saw Al Jardine with his band last summer. Um, and they did a couple deep cuts, you know, like in their, in their set list. And one of the songs they did was Surf's Up.
1: And like I
0: god i felt like the only person there that was excited that they were doing surfs up like i was <laughs> like when they said we're gonna do surfs up because i didn't look up the track list i didn't know like what song yeah. does i didn't want to spoil it for me so i was like oh this is awesome you know and like i could tell like everyone around me had no idea what the song was or like they were just like confused by it there was like some people talking and stuff so like i don't know i just think like yeah certain songs i think like you have to kind of know who your audience is you know and with the beach boys you do have a lot more of a casual audience that's there to hear like the popular song is understandable but like i think that's why like like i said you don't you don't you didn't see a lot of like smile songs like during that tour or to this day so
1: yeah i I agree the the marcella marcella was actually part of the set list
0: yeah that's cool that's awesome i would have loved to see that um all right. So, yep. I mean, uh, do you guys want to share any thoughts on like the current Mike and Bruce touring band? We can also get into some of our own concert experiences, whether that's like seeing the members solo, since this is like a live show episode, we can talk <laughs> about seeing Brian or Al or whoever. So, uh do you guys I, uh, have thoughts on the current like touring uh, Beach Boys?
2: Never seen them. Never seen them. I've heard they're good. I've never seen them. I'm kind of like you, uh Jake, where like before I was like kind of very much against the idea of uh, the Mike and Bruce show. But now mm-hmm. if they came around, I'd probably go see them. I just hasn't really come up it hasn't really just been in the cards i don't think they've played around me or i just have been busy or something but uh, i would definitely like to see them other than i know i'm probably to sit through that pisces brothers song and the other (laughs) is um, mike still make that stupid quip about surfer they them or whatever i'm not sure i
1: don't i saw him uh actually in november uh they didn't really make a he didn't he was actually pretty tame with the politics which i think he's kind of starting to realize oh good oh
2: good okay so definitely see i just haven't I've seen Brian. I saw Brian in 2018. He was okay. I think I said this before. It wasn't like the worst. It wasn't as bad as those Chicago shows, but it wasn't like the best either. I think I just saw him on like an okay night, but it was it was still cool to see him. I kind of went into it saying like, you know, think of this like you're just seeing the maestro at his piano. Don't necessarily expect, you know, like you're not going to expect like the greatest concert you've ever seen from like a vocal perspective. But it's just to see him in his element with like all the great musicians. That's kind of what you're going to see. So that's just that's my my take on it.
1: I um I saw them not too long ago. I it was a pretty good show. I mean I I mean the backing band was probably more of the highlight. I actually saw them with the Rascals. The Rascals were their opener. And if you guys don't know who the Rascals are, they did good Yeah, ride. I know them. So they were the opener. I actually thought the Rascals did a better job for their half hour set than the <sighs> two hour set I saw with Mike and Bruce, but I was there with my friend and we were singing Help Me Rhonda fun fun fun. It was a good time. I, I, I didn't expect, like, a great great concert. I actually saw them in 2015, so three years after the reunion show. Um, Jeff Foskett was with them, and John Stamos was with them, and that was pretty cool. I, I'll i admit, I mean, even though John Stamos is kind of a douchebag, I mean, it's still pretty cool to see him live with the band. He, he performed, I think, the whole show. And we were, oh. my parents got us pretty close seats. This was in 2015, so I was still kind of really starting my music journey with like getting into music i still knew i get around so i was like really happy to hear that one um but i i remember one of the biggest things i remember from that show is an exact quote is mike's like and here's another song from pet sounds so I, that was pretty <laughs> funny because he was like he's like our pet sounds album and he said that about five times throughout the entire show i think did, uh,
0: no go ahead. yeah ask. did he did he do that quote where he's like there's two parts of the show
1: the first half
0: and the second half. He has this like stupid thing he says. I mean, he said it at multiple shows because I've seen like he does it like around the intermission. I think he, he does it. But. It was um
1: uh, it was in uh not It was in 2015. I was uh 12. No, yeah, I was 12 years old, so I don't remember too much from it. All I remember is the Pet Sounds name being dropped about 50 <laughs> times, and that was I think that's kind of what influenced my love for the Beach Boys too, is I saw them when I was like getting into a music musical journey. And I heard pet Sounds be mentioned at this concert I went to when I was 12, like 15 times. But my dad, mom, and brother were there. It was a really good time. I think I liked that show better. I wish I was more appreciative of it more. But good show. Um, I'm glad I got to see Mike and Bruce at least one more time, like, fully aware of what was going on before I, like, inevitably passes away. But knowing him, that evil man's going (laughs) to live until he's, like, 120.
4: right. (laughs)
0: Um, so my experience seeing Mike and Bruce, so I've seen Mike and Bruce twice. Uh, the first time I saw them was in 2019. Uh, and this was before I got really into the beach boys. Actually, I was at that concert. It was in, uh, Ravinia, which is a venue in Chicago. A lot of artists perform and, uh, it's outdoor things. Like you bring a chair or a blanket and you, you set up and you, and you watch the show. Um, and at that time I was there to see Ringo Starr because Ringo Starr was the headlining act. And uh, I'm a big Beatles fan, so I wanted to see Ringo. So I was there to see Ringo, but th- nice, awesome. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so I I kind of remember the Beach Boys set list. Uh, like I remember watching it. Um, I remember like I, I don't think I was really familiar with like which Beach Boys at that time were like actually like Beach Boys and which were just like the backing band. I knew Brian Wilson wasn't there. Like I knew Mike Love was uh, an original member, but like I didn't know much about like Bruce at that time. Um, and I just remember uh, they did a lot of the popular hits like they normally do, and I was definitely like paying attention. I wasn't like ignoring them. I was watching and like singing some of the songs. Um, I want to say Bruce did Disney Girls, but at the time, I wasn't like that familiar with like any of the band's like deeper cuts. So like, I don't think I really enjoyed it or like understood it. So um, but yes, yeah, so I, I kind of remember that concert. Um, my more memorable experience seeing them was, um, in, uh, December of 2022, uh, when I saw them in downtown Chicago, um, for like one of their holiday shows. And at that point, obviously I was like really into the band at that point. I was already like full blown, you know, beach boys fan. I have been for the past few years now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I sat towards the front with my younger brother. I took him with me and, uh, it was a really great show. Uh, they, had, that has a lot of energy. Uh, the backing musicians are great. Uh, I forget what the the guys, I know Mike's band recently changed. He added some younger members and he replaced some of the older guys. But whoever was doing the falsetto parts that night, I forget the guy's name. I've heard it before, but he sounded really, really good uh, doing like Brian's parts. Uh, Mike sounded pretty good for his age. Bruce, you know, was doing his usual like hand clapping and stuff. But like uh, it was it was a good show. Uh, <laughs> Mike was dropping some of his like holiday album songs, which I could have done without. Uh I do think it's funny how like that reason for the season song is literally just like shortening bread but like with holiday lyrics which is like yet another continuation of like Brian's obsession with like <laughs> shortening bread ding dang you know so now Mike's literally doing it which is hilarious um and uh I remember the guy next to me at, at when he was doing that show uh after Mike finished that song the guy turns to me and he's like well they can't all be hits can they <laughs> I just started
4: laughing <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was a good show. no deep cuts or anything from what I remember. I was kind of hoping with sail on Sailor coming out, they were gonna do like something, but I don't remember there being any deeper cuts, but overall, it was a good show. I enjoyed it and um, yeah, besides that, I saw Brian in october of twenty twenty one and um it was a really uh great show uh, it was towards the end of Brian's touring period, obviously, he stopped touring in twenty twenty two um, and that was the last concert of 2021 for him. So it was like the last show before he got a, a break until the tour with Chicago the next year. Um, and uh, it was a really good show from Brian. I know like, like you were saying, Matt, like it's kind of an up and down thing with Brian. You never know what you're going to get. You know, you kind of go into it like knowing like, you know, there, he might not totally be in with it that night, but that's okay. Uh, but this was a really good show for him. And I kind of knew from like the first song, uh, which I think was either, I think it was California Girls uh, that it was going to be a great show because like Brian really seemed like he was into it. Uh, the backing band for Brian is so good. Like they really bring the songs to life. Um, and they really, again, like, you know, Brian's not always the most active in his own shows, but like that backing band is so good. Matt Jardine is so good with like his vocals. Al still does great on stage. Um, and it was just a really cool experience and, uh, they did do some really cool deep cuts. They did, um, I'll add some music, which was awesome. I was really happy to get to see that live. And Brian, I believe, sang the bridge, like the music when you're alone part, which was really cool. Mm. Uh, They did feel flows, which was cool. I don't think I was that into feel flows at that time, actually. So like, I don't know if I fully appreciated it, but I do remember Blondie was like ripping on guitar uh, during that, which was cool. Uh, Long Promised Road they did, which was cool. Uh, Brian sang the bridge on that, from what I remember. Um, and I would say the highlight of the night for me was God only knows, uh, getting to hear Brian sing God only knows, I think almost in its entirety, he might've sang like most of it and then somebody else took over towards the end, but, uh, it was so cool getting to see like this song that, you know, I just absolutely love one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, getting to see the, the, the guy that wrote it actually sing it right in front of me and be in the same room as him. It was just an incredible experience. Um, And I think I've said this before, maybe, but like that's one of the songs that like to this day, like when I go to see like a Beach Boys show, whether it's Al Jardine or Mike Love's band, when that song starts, I always get chills just because it's like it's like this moment. It's like here it is, you know. And um, yeah, overall, I had a really good experience. I'll always be thankful I got to see Brian. Uh, Obviously, we didn't know at the time that, I mean, I think we kind of knew he wasn't going to be touring for too much longer, but like I would have never, I wouldn't have guessed like literally the following year he wouldn't be touring anymore. Um, So I'm really thankful I got to see him. I'm glad that he's able to rest now. I'm happy that like, it seems like from the pictures I've seen, it seems like he's doing well and he seems happier. And I saw that picture of him with like the Beach Boys coloring book, which is kind of nice to see, you know, seeing Brian like looking at the book and stuff. So that was my experience, uh, seeing them. And then obviously I, like I said, I saw Al last year, which was cool. I think Al had a cold. Um, he didn't sound too great by his standards, but I think he was just like, I think he just had something like he was sick or something, but, uh, it was, it was a good show and Matt Jardine sounded good and I enjoyed it. So, uh, I know you Justin have some, uh, some cool stories with the beach boys. You actually met them in the nineties. Why don't you tell us some of your uh, experiences seeing the beach boys and meeting the beach boys?
3: Yeah, so I only actually saw them twice. I saw them on the the 50th anniversary, which uh my dad took me to, and then also my dad got me tickets in 1992. Um it was the day before I think it was or day or two days before Summer in Paradise was to be released. So uh it's kind of exciting because I didn't really know what we were getting. I I'd never heard the album. Um they played a couple of the, the the songs from it in concert. They played Hot um, Fun in the Summertime," and then I think they played the updated version of "Surfin'." But it didn't sound like it did on the on the <laughs> record. It sounded a little bit more like an actual band playing instead of like computerized drums and stuff. But uh, yeah, it was this, the '92 show was phenomenal. Um, it was Carl, Al, and Mike. No Brian or Bruce. Um, And then Adrian Baker was there, Billy Hinchy, Ed Carter, uh, Matt Jardine. I feel like I'm missing somebody. Oh, there was a sax player, too. There was uh, Richie Cannata from Billy Joel's band. It was the sax player at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was it. And um, they put on a great show. The only downside was the cheerleaders. (laughs) <laughs> like uh, Matt says at the time. They that was the first song. It was um California Girls, they came out and they did the, the cheerleaders and everything. And then that was it after that. And um they played I Can Hear Music, um Darlin. What else did they play? Um, the the encore was uh Wipeout. Uh Billy Hinchy actually put on sunglasses and rapped the the Wipeout the rap or whatever. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah yeah
0: oh my god
3: yeah it was uh it's quite something oh. to see but uh <laughs> they did they ended up doing two shows that day i did we went to the afternoon show and then there was an evening show anyways uh it it was in um canada's wonderland which is like this big like kind of amusement park yeah, I've heard of um, it. it's kind of north of where i live i live in like downtown toronto it's kind of a north in vaughan it's kind of like in the middle of nowhere. There's like a lot of like fields and like grass and stuff around. So we kind of took like the entire day and we ended up going to Canada's Wonderland. We did some of the rides and stuff. And then we went to this concert, to the Beach Boys concert. And then uh, that was to like three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And then after that, my dad's just like, Oh, why don't we just walk around for a bit just to kind of just like, kind of just like, cause we've been sitting for the last like two or three hours or whatever. So we just like walk around and it's like this like really like um secluded field area that he's taking us to my dad. And um he's like, "Wow, look over there." And then and then we see the band sitting at these two tables eating sandwiches by the trailers, you know, like they have like the trailers in the back and behind the mm-hmm. the uh the 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 venue, but because this venue is like an open it's like an open field basically. It doesn't exist anymore, but it, it, uh, at the time, it was like kind of like an open field. And then uh, my dad's like, oh, I wonder if we can go over there and like talk to them or whatever. And then he got their attention somehow. He's like whistling and like doing this with his hands. And then they, they told us to come over like this. So we, we go over and um, my dad starts talking with Carl about the 60s. And then I was with my mom and my, my brother and we were talking with Alan, Mike, and some of the other members of the band. And that's when I was kind of telling them about Sunflower. Sunflower is one of my favorite albums at the time. They're like, oh, I haven't heard about that in years, that album, kind of thing. And um, they were just surprised that I was just such a young fan that knew so much about them. And especially in those days, because there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't any internet or anything. Every, everything I had to kind of like read in books or like, obtain like the albums and like actually read the liner notes and that kind of stuff so yeah it was it was a really fun experience and I still remember looking up at Carl and seeing his blue eyes and yeah it was just it was so cool and like at that time you didn't think that that he would pass so soon like that and like I mentioned like when I saw his face on TV and I thought like oh we're getting a new album finally like after summer in Paradise because that was such a letdown that album. And another funny thing about that album is uh, after they mentioned, Mike mentioned it in concert. Oh, we're coming out with this new album, Summer in Paradise. Here are some songs from it. Of course, the next day I like bothered my parents. Oh, can we go to the mall and like see if this new album's out yet? So we ended up going to the mall and we went to this place called, um, Sunrise Records, which is kind of, was like a big store in Canada at the time. And, um, of course there's like no promotion or anything about this album nobody knows anything about it And you like ask anybody in the store they're like what 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 Beach Boys I have no idea I had to go to the back like where all the tapes were lined up and look through the bees and then I found it and they had one copy that was it (laughs) and at that time I remember it was like $9.99 for the cassette yeah and then uh we put ended up putting it in the car on the way home and Papa. i remember that and then it's like oh my god what are those drums because it, so- it sounded dated <laughs> even at that point as i've mentioned like um nirvana had come out by that point and like smells like teen spirit and like you hear like these like computerized drums and stuff that sounded out of like 1988 it, it didn't sound right so that was kind of a letdown that album
0: and then and then after that you know you kept it playing right and then Surfin' came on, and you probably, were probably like jesus like what did we buy or like is there something wrong with our tape or something you know like,
3: <laughs> my my uh my dad actually liked it at the at that time really yeah, yeah, yeah. wow but yeah, I, was- I felt there was something off with it because i remember even looking through the liner notes and i'm like there's no mention of brian wilson anywhere here there's there's nothing there's no no not even a mention of his name at all anywhere
0: yeah, I mean it's like it's one of those albums, like again, I think people hate on it just because it's fun to hate on it. Like, yeah, it's it's rough, obviously. But like there it has its, you know, it has its charm it does, it, it does. on it. Like I think I, I mentioned like I kinda like like the cover of like Under the Boardwalk. I like Carl's vocal. I know the production's cheesy, but like I like Carl's vocal. Um I'm trying to think what else I like on there. Uh La Hena Aloha is great. Like that's like actually like a genuinely like good song. Like I actually liked it a lot. Uh Still Serpent's kind of fun. Um you know, it's it's not the worst thing. It's just like you said that the production it's just like my God, like the drums, like Jesus.
3: It's the it's really it's the drums. It the drums remind me of. I have this uh, drum machine. It's an Alessis Lysus SR16. It reminds me so much of this drum machine. I'm sure they use the same one for this. But <laughs> it sounds exactly like it. And it, the, the same thing with the Crocodile Rock um uh, cover that they did. It has oh. that that roll in the beginning. It sounds so much like this machine, but. Uh, yeah just it sounds so cheesy
2: i think also too like you know keep in mind we're big fans so we we can uh, we can apologize for a lot of stuff if you are not a big fan of this group or if you are like more like you only like the more quickly clean stuff you put this on and you think you have beach on the cover and you think this is probably one of the biggest i would say dichotomies between the best of the catalog and the worst i mean (laughs) for a band of this stature let's be honest it's pretty fucking bad it is it's like, you know, if it came from a band that maybe wasn't as good, we probably, you know, but like, it's like, we can apologize for a lot, but I can see why like the
0: people, the average reviewer and the average person hated it because it's, yeah. it's yeah. Rough. it's very rough. See, but I think that's the fun thing with the Beach Boys is that like the discography is like so all over the place. Like with like a band like the Beatles, or you know, like people are like, like there's people that are just like, everything's good, you know, like we love everything, you yeah. know, like there's. And then like us, we're just like, yeah, they release some crap, but like we like it anyway. Like it's just, it's just funny, you know. Like and then as you listen, like, you go to appreciate you those albums, like and you you guys know I kind of like M.I.U. now. I used to not care for it, but now I kind of yeah. like it. Um, yeah. yeah. like Keeping the Summer Alive. There's some charm in it that I that I do enjoy some songs. Would I ever put it on for somebody? No, but like there's songs in there I personally like. So like I think that's kind yeah. of a fun thing with their yeah, discography
2: have to admit it can be it can be hard for people to get into the group because of that because you have to be careful with what you're recommending like the nice thing about the beatles the beatles are super easy to say start at the beginning go on or like the velvet underground or something that like has like a pretty spotless discography i think nirvana would be another one to their discography they only had three albums but you know hey they were all good right you know like it can be hard with the beach boys because like i would never recommend to somebody start at the beginning and go on no no no, no. you have no, to recommend. yeah the right.
3: yeah summer in paradise when it came out to like i w- it wasn't that I was so like upset about it, like the the sound and stuff too. It was more like um I was waiting for the next album because at that point they were actually like releasing albums like fairly frequently. Mm-hmm. You're kind of thinking, Okay, this album sucks. In a couple years they'll release another album and it might be good, you know? But then you didn't realize that that's kind of the last one, you know.
0: It's crazy that like that cover of Forever on there was the last again not counting stars and stripes that was their last like note of music for like decades like jesus like my god yeah
3: <laughs> well still cruising still cruising had come out just a few years prior to that i was a fan even then when still cruising came and i remember getting the cassette for that too and um that was a little bit of a letdown too because it had the older tracks but at least it had some good songs on the the first side which was um somewhere near japan was a great song. It had uh, what else? Make it big in my car. Yeah.
0: I'd like to hear them do Make It Big live. I don't think they ever did, but I would have liked to have heard them try it. Like to have like Make It Big? No, they They never did it. No. Someone on Discogs called that album "Summer
2: in or uh, Summer in Japan" plus nine bonus tracks on Discogs, which I thought was really funny. Kokomo. (laughs) Yeah. People hate Kokomo, so it depends on who you ask.
1: (sighs) Kokomo slaps. (laughs)
2: <laughs> it was it always shows up on those lists of like worst songs ever which i don't That's, think is bad but it's because it's because of you know it's from the i mean you know what's always on it's always the same stuff on that list we built this city my heart yeah. will go and blah 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 you know i <laughs> i
1: like i i looked at the chord structure for kokomo and i because i was trying to learn on guitar for whatever reason i was actually listening to the 50th anniversary concert version and i was like oh right. i noticed this chord change and i'm like oh this actually sounds pretty good and look on a it, guitar it's actually like a pretty good chord structure How could you hate that song?
0: Again, it's
1: what it it represents. Like that's I know.
0: Like it's like it's like it's exactly like what you mentioned, Matt, with we built this city. Like, is the song itself bad? No, it's just like people just don't like that, like that used to be Jefferson airplane, and it's like this is what they are now. And it's just like, you know, but again, it's one of those things where like I feel like I think I said this before with Kokomo. Like, I feel like if you're hating on it, you're just like hating on like fun, like just accept it for what it is like, yes, we we know it's not something like it's not something like pet sound. It's not something like from any of those amazing albums that they made. But for what it is, which is an 80s cheesy movie track, it's fine. Like, it's fun. I like it. So yeah, yeah, I think with that, probably a good note to end on. All right. So yeah, thank you everybody for listening to this sixth episode of Good Timing. I hope you enjoyed the show. I had a great time doing both of these live show episodes with you guys. Uh, It was really interesting hearing all of your different uh, facts and opinions and stories about all the live shows. It was a lot of fun talking about it. Um, As we all know, this band has a really crazy history, and I'm sure that there's plenty of things that we didn't even get to on this show. But uh, I feel like we covered quite a bit, and I hope that everybody listening uh, feels satisfied. So, uh, as always, if you like this podcast and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe or follow wherever you're listening uh, we greatly appreciate the support as it motivates us to make more episodes in the future. Uh, also, as a reminder, the podcast is now available on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So uh, there's now more ways than ever to listen and keep up with the show. So uh, thank you again for listening. We really appreciate it, and we hope to see you next time. Bye-bye.